listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Welcome to, I think it's episode 23 of Love That Album, Morris Bostinski here, and on the other side of a Skype connection, I have a previous alumnus, previous alumnus, maybe that's tautologist, I don't know, I have an alumnus of Love That Album, a previous presenter, Justin Bozung of the Mondo Film Podcast, good evening, good morning to you. Hey, how you doing? I'm waving the American flag saying thanks for having me back. Uh, Absolutely wonderful to have you back, Uh, I had a really, really fantastic time talking with you last time about uh, One Trick Pony, uh, the Paul Simon album and uh, film. Actually, I, I noticed there's been a whole lot of um, uh, fuss going on with you know, new documentaries and all that about uh, Paul Simon's uh, 25th anniversary of Graceland going on at the moment. Have you, um, have you seen the film? No, no, I haven't actually. But, you know, not to change subjects, but after our conversation... Did you become more of a fan of One Trick Pony, the film? <laughs> or are you look, still sort of anti on the fence about the film? No, no, no. Look, um, uh, as I think I might have mentioned to you last time after we discussed the film, I, I, I confess I haven't gone and watched it back a second time, but after our discussion last time, I, I, I think I definitely reckon it's a better film than what I went into the podcast thinking it was. Uh, I still maintain that Paul Simon can't act for shit. Um, but, <laughs> but uh, and maybe some of the dialogue, but certainly the themes discussed and uh, I guess overall approached, uh, the overall approach to the film was, was far better than I'd given it credit to before um, going into the podcast. So uh, kudos to you for um, uh, making me see the light in that regard. Um, there you go. Um, now, tonight, uh, it's not Paul Simon related. What we're going to be doing tonight is talking about an album that both of us are, um, are uh, absolutely crazy about. It's, it's uh, Big Star's number one record. Now, this one sort of came about because I, I think I'd gone and put a post on the Love That Album Facebook page a couple of months ago or whenever it was saying that it only just struck me that this was, what, the, the 40th anniversary of... Um, of number one record and then you came back and said right here's a whole lot of facts that you should know about and I thought wow he he knows his stuff about that maybe we ought to uh, do this as a podcast yeah well you know my love affair with with the band Big Star and the album number one record goes back to sort of the mid 90s I was one of the I was kind of like the only guy I knew that had actually heard that album when you know back then, and then you know I have had the opportunity to to see the big star in concert, and I actually got to meet Alex Chilton, but I, I want to tell you, save that story for later on because mm, it's a really mm. good story okay, cool um all right, well, look before we go into um, discussing big star and the like um as as you know, what I like to do is always ask my co presenter for the show, what have you been listening to <laughs> Uh, you're going to kill me because this is a music show, and I've sort of been listening to 
non-music things. Okay, actually. go for it. That's but, that's fine. That's fine. But this is the thing. So I've been I I have been listening to some music. And I just want to kind of go through a few of these albums that I've been listening to. First off, we have a new Beach Boys album that came out called Why God Made the Radio. We did and I'm speak simply, about that briefly on um on uh, Facebook. Yep, yep, yep. So your, your thoughts? I'm in love with it. I'm in love with it. Every time I listen to it, it grows more and more and more, you know, wonderful for me. You know, there are a few missteps on it. You know, like, you know, like I said, I think it's like a four out of five star album. There's some really great songs. And what's sort of interesting about it is, is you look at the songwriting credits on a new album. You have Brian returning and doing some writing with Joe Thomas, who he, had, he hasn't written with basically since uh, 1995's Imagination. Mm. And so I'm not sure if some of those songs, you know, these songs on the new album are sort of outtakes or leftovers from that because, you know, Brian is sort of notorious for, you know, coming up with songs and sort of, you know, stashing them away and then putting them on albums mm. years later. You know, like, for example, on Imagination, uh, there's a track called she, uh, she Needs Me, which is an early Beach Boys song from 65 called Sherry, She Needs Me, which was sort of an outtake. And so, you know, we have got that, that great album coming out. There's a song on the new Beach Boys album that was co-written by John Bon Jovi. Mm. Yes, and, yes. You know, <laughs> so it's just kind of like, wow, you know, I would have, I would have been. I'm shocked by that. I would have expected to see that, like Brian Wilson working with Lady Gaga before I see <laughs> working with John Bon Jovi. Will you wash your so. mouth out with soap. <laughs> Ugh. But but so, so I mean, yeah, I love that album. I think it's fabulous. There's look, another it's, album. I got to say, it's it's an album that's a lot better than it probably deserved to be. You know, we, we never would have thought. You know, I mean, they could have quite easily gone and said, you know, as they did. Well, you know, 2012. The, uh, the the remnants of the Beach Boys plus David Marks, um, you know, coming back and you know Brian and Mike Love burying the hatchet or you know going to perform you know, going around the world and and oh yeah okay so they're going to put out a token album just so they have an excuse to you know sell something at the gigs okay all uh, right let's get on with it let's hear what it is and you know when I when I got hold of it uh, like you know the intro I thought. Jesus, this is this is pretty fucking good. And then you know the yeah. second song, you know, that's why God made the right. And and yeah, you're right. There are a couple of missteps. I think it was that that, that sort of the adventures of Bill and Sue. I thought, oh yuck, you know, that's Brian trying to be a little contemporary and talk about Big Brother or or, or talk about uh, you know the media's obsession with with you know whoever you know the latest celebrity or, or just ordinary people it might be you know, I thought, yeah no it doesn't work you know um but but really there you know there are some fantastic songs you know summer's gone you know what a gorgeous closer to the to the album and and those harmonies my god oh yeah you, and really i mean like they're, they're all how old, 69, 70 years old, and they those harmonies, I mean, okay, granted, there's probably some studio trickery in there, but I reckon that, you know, when they're going to go out on the road, the studio trickery can't hide them then, and they're probably still going to have the chops. They're playing in, in Melbourne. They're coming to Australia in, in August, I think, and uh, I, I haven't been game to sort of like look and see what ticket prices are yet, but um, my, my family's trying to... Um, my son and my wife are big Ben Folds fans, and they're saying, no, no, stuff that we're saving. If we can only afford to go to one concert, it's going to be Ben Folds 5. So, um, <laughs> which I got no arguments again, but I think, you know, Jesus, but it's, it's, it's Brian Wilson, you know? And, and, man. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Anyway. Don't, 
don't feel so bad because I, I'm not. I'm actually not going. They're playing here in a couple weeks, and okay. I just decided against it. I was like, I mean, I've seen Brian like four or five times in concert. In fact, I was. See, well, I have. You know, yeah. he's got um. He has a very unique relationship. I'm I'm here in Detroit, of course, and he's yep. got a very unique relationship with Detroit and the Metro Detroit area. And that in 1999, he kicked off his very first solo tour, as oh, first wow. solo appearance here. And he's come back many times, and I've had the opportunity to not only see him every time he's come, but I've also met him three three out of the five times I've seen him in concert at the show. And so, you know, so I've done that. I've had that experience, and I've seen the Beach Boys many times. They, you know, they're sort of a staple, minus Brian Wilson, around here mm-hmm. in the summer. And so I just, you know, I just after seeing him on the Grammys, I just didn't want to sort of put myself through that. But I'll, but I'll tell you though, I'm really, I really love the new album, just as you said, because it, for me, it's sort of feel. I mean, with the exception of a few songs, it's it sort of, it has the feel of a sort of solo Brian album. If you, yeah, you know, you hear like his band really at work here, and I'll tell you that you know. Scott Bennett is sort of like his sort of go-to guy these days, and he's mm. so he, he contributes so much to this new album. It's like I really would love for Brian and Scott Bennett just to write another album. It's sort of like you know I'm a huge champion. I love the album that he did uh, a year or so ago called Lucky Old Son. I think that album is just a mind blower, and so I really like them to do some more stuff in that vein. I might have to go back to that, but I remember a, a very good friend of mine. Uh, who went and bought it day one, and he said, "Look, you know, we'll give you a loan and have a listen if you like it. Go out and buy it." And I came home and I put it on, and I, I don't know, maybe just I was expecting too much, but um, yeah, at the time it it didn't really grab me. But maybe in light of you know how how much I love, you know, that's why God made the radio. I think um, I owe it to uh, to uh, Mr. Wilson to um, give that one another listen. Yeah, yeah, you you got to go back and revisit that. I mean, the, you know, his his one thing about his solo about Brian's solo work that I've always sort of had a problem with is, you know, some of the stuff he's done is sort of is dated itself in the sense like so you have like 1988's uh, you know, the sold self-titled solo album mm. which is just so filled with like synthesizers and it just Sin- sounds Lynn drums it, instantly dated you know it's yep, got like yep. Lindsay buckingham producing on it and jeff lynn and mm. and then you have like imagination in 95 which again has a lot of these synths on it yeah, yeah. and it's like it sort of dated itself so you know as he's sort of progressed and put out solo albums you know like he came out with uh, i think in 99 2002 this one called i'm getting in over my head I think, and that one was that one was sort of a misstep for me too. But, but you know, ever since the the new smile came out, he's sort of, you know, I've really, really fallen in love with his his solo stuff all over again. I I think he probably had some. Uh, what is it? Um, Darian Sahanaja. Sahanaja, um, who um, also I, I was I was thrilled to see um, when uh, the, there was the uh, original zombies. Uh, reunion for uh, the 40th anniversary of uh, Odyssey and Oracle. They, it was like a set with you know the original zombies, and then a set with the, the touring zombies of the last you know however many years. And Darian was was part of that. And I just thought that just makes so much sense. But this guy, he obviously loves this music, and he wants to get the best out of it. And um, and I I think he's been a really good asset for uh, for Brian. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and speaking of that's that's an album that I would love to cover with you someday too, because that's one of my very favorite albums, Odyssey and Oracle. Uh, we're actually, done. Consider I, it done. Consider it done. <laughs> I've, I I haven't done it yet because I I really want to do that one justice. That's just like I think I I only discovered it maybe about 
I don't know, four years ago or something like that. And I can't believe where had that album been all my life. I only, I think I read about it in an uncut magazine or a Mojo magazine article uh, as they were approaching uh, the anniversary and the reunion. And I thought, ooh, what's, what's this one all about? And I, I went and looked on Amazon and it was like $15 for Odyssey and Oracle or $18 for the four CD box set of everything that they did. I thought, all right, well, spend the 18 bucks. And, you know, there's a lot of good stuff in there, but you know, it's the Odyssey and Oracle disc that I keep coming back to. Yeah, yeah, and you know that album is interesting because they, they, you know, they broke up before it was released. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I was just like you. I got to see. Um, they came here to Detroit. It was an, it was one of the best concerts I ever went to. I saw. It was uh, the Zombies performing in its entirety, Odyssey and Oracle, yeah. and other songs. Mm. And after I got to meet both Colin and Rod Argent. Oh, I hate and, you. Uh, <laughs> it was awesome because like. Um, my wife was a huge uh, fan of this uh, this musical called Starlight Express, mm. which only plays in London. It's a it's a roller skating musical. If yeah, you will. yeah. I'm but anyway, Rod Argent did all the music for that, so we got to talk to him about that. He was just so thrilled that someone actually knew that he was involved in Starlight Express, yeah. and, and uh, that show was, by the way, opened up by uh, Arthur Lee and Love doing the whole Forever Changes. Album. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Christ. Yeah, and after and after that show, I got to meet Arthur and Johnny Eccles, the original guitar player of Love, and it was like literally two weeks before Arthur Lee died. It was it was incredible. He was so nice. He signed my photo. I had this great photo of Love, and they signed my concert tickets, and it was it was awesome. Just imagine forever now, and Odyssey and uh, for, forever change forever now. For <laughs> Jesus, hearing Love and and the Zombies on the one bill. Jesus, you'd be in pop heaven. You wouldn't, you know. You'd say, "Right, that's it. I'm closing my ears yeah. off now. I don't need to hear anything ever again." You know, that's just it was a night of pop perfection. Um, it was and, incredible, and there was only like 200 people there. It was it was like there was so much breathing room. It was general admission. It was like one of the best concerts I've ever been to. Christ, you know, I, I, what I would love is you know, going to a concert. I mean, I love that Love album from top to bottom, but you know, I want to hear the Daily Planet. Played live. Um, that's my favourite track off the album. Um, it's got you know these these great time signature changes in it. It's melodic. Uh, it, it's got you know, this great acoustic guitar that fills out the middle. Um, some really cool drum fills towards the end. It's just for me pop perfection. And and uh, fuck. Um, I'm just as a as a quick digression because we where you were talking about you know you got to meet Rod Argent. Yeah, you bastard. Um, <laughs> Where I'm, I'm in an acapella group, and about I don't know three years ago or so, we had to replace our alto singer. So you know we were looking around and had a couple of auditions. and it was Roger. You replaced it with Rod Argent. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's right. Um, he he does a mighty fine alto. I'll have you know, um, hairy arms though. But we had this um, <laughs> woman who came along from. Uh, she was like, she was on a tourist visa. Uh, from the UK, and so it was seriously between her and the woman that we eventually chose. But this this woman who you know she came down and sat with us and you know spoke and you know she had a, she had a really good voice and all that. And she was like having a look through what we had in our repertoire. And one of the songs that I'd written an arrangement for was um, "She's Not There," and she said, "Oh, she's not. Yeah, that was written by Uncle Rod." I said. Excuse me. She said, "Well, he's not—he's not really my uncle, but you know, like I think her mother, 
and her her mother and father were in this group, or mother and stepfather, whoever, were in this group called Colosseum or Colossus or something like that, which was a jazz band from, like a, a jazz fusion or modern jazz band from, from London. And so, you know, their house is always full of, you know, the uh, the music aristocracy and um, you know, she was quite young at the time and, you know, Rod Argent was a frequent visitor to her house. So she's, oh, yeah, yeah, you used to call him Uncle Rod. And, you know, I was saying, she's, you know, she calls him Uncle Rod. We've got to have her in the group. And no, we don't think so. But oh, there you go. So it's not really a, a Rod Argent story. But I just had to. Just <laughs> so did you actually, did you ever cover, have you covered any Argent songs? Like you should maybe do an acapella version of Hold Your Head Up. No, look, as I said, we've, we've done... Um, uh, you know, she's not there, and I'm about three quarters of the way through writing. Actually, I think this might be a Chris White composition. Um, uh, this will be our year. Um, oh yeah, because that's that's just you know between. I, I think the the two great. I mean, I love the whole album. I can't say I have a favorite, but I just I love that duality between you know between that song and the song that comes after it you know um this will be our year which is just so sunny and beautiful and the next song the butcher's tale which i more so for me than any anti-war film or anti-war song for me tells about you know the futility of war that song does it more than anything i've ever seen or heard um just two absolutely colossus songs and they're on the one album. It's just a perfect, perfect pop album. Um, and I, I don't know because we, we, you know we, I mentioned before the reunion shows that they did, uh, and they you know put them on DVD. I ordered the DVD from overseas. Uh, and there's the bit where you know they're, they're doing Odyssey and Oracle from start to finish, and Chris White comes along to sing the Butcher's Tale, and like. He, you know, because you know it's been many years since you know he recorded it since he was a young man and he's older and his voice is a lot more cracked and fragile. And I thought, you know what, it actually works even better than it does on the album because you know he's he really when he sings that line, my hands won't stop shaking, my uh, my heart won't stop shaking, and his, his voice is more fragile than it ever was, and it it. Just works even better for me than it than it did back in the day when they recorded it. So, um, but yeah, now we we got we got to do that album. I think that's um that's on the that's got to be next before the end of the year. I think we're going to do that one, Justin. Yeah, and, and then I've been listening. There's an album that I've sort of been obsessing about. Um, you know, I'm sure, and I'm sure you've done this, but like, there's often times where you know, someone a music fan will just buy an album or or get interested in the album simply because of the cover. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and and so I did that here uh, a couple months ago. I've just sort of became enthralled with this cover and this this album uh, that Bo Diddley put out called The Black Gladiator. Okay, and it has got this incredible cover. It's this really just super artistic cover. It just it just really sort of exploded to me in my mind. I was like, I gotta check this album out. And so you know, God picked up a copy of it, and it just it blew my mind. I've been sort of listening to it daily, and it's a you know, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with some of the earlier Bo Diddley. So I never heard a lot of the until recently. I never heard a lot of the seven, the early '70s funk sort of you know tr- 
progression that he went into, funk mm-hmm. blues. And so this album is really incredible because if you know anything about Bodilla, you know that eventually in the mid sixties he took on like sort of these two uh female background singers that I think sometimes played backup instruments for him too. Mm-hmm. And so this this album is incredible. It it's it's seriously like you listen to it and it's so raw. And, and nasty and it's like in the red like if you listen to it it's just mixed like it's in the red and it sounds like you know like Bo Diddley and these two chicks got you know a bunch of whiskey and a bunch of cocaine <laughs> and went to the hotel room yeah. and partied for a couple days so and if then it they had just ex- picked up some instruments and so this if, is if it so- had ex- if it had existed at the time that's the sort of album that might have been on Fat Possum Records or something like that I don't know I, I mean it's just so raw and it sounds improvisational and you know it's like a lot it almost sounds religious in the sense that like you have these songs like this the song called black soul and it's mm. you know him singing and the girls come in the background and they go black sobo <laughs> <laughs> you know it's so awesome yeah it is it is incredible it's just so like in the red and then you're like there's some records that sort of you know that tout like being mixed in the red like you know like Speaking of Stooges, Raw Power yep. was always said touted as being mixed in the red. Well, this album is really mixed in the red. Okay. Like, I mean, it's just sort of going off, you know, off the meter. And so if you haven't heard this album, or even the listeners haven't heard this album, they've got to get this album. Because so it, it is Black so Gladiator? nasty. It's called The Black Gladiator. It came out in 1970. There's a there's a compilation, I think, uh, called Bo Dilly Tales of the Funk, I think, which yep. also has the album in its entirety on that on that compilation as well. Okay, wow. So it, it must have been so nasty mm. yeah it's so incredible and so i've been listening to that and then i also been listening to uh <laughs> i've been listening to uh the black sabbath catalog all right okay <laughs> and i'm jumping all over here and i'm gonna jump even farther if that tell you i've been i've been i picked up um this has you know to do with what we talked about earlier but i picked up a couple really obscure uh albums um from that are on CD from the uh, mid '60s, um, you know, here in Detroit, uh, the 1968 Detroit Tigers baseball team won the World Series, and the pitcher on that team was named Denny McLean. He was the last pitcher to win 31 and 30, would go 31 and six. Never, it's a record that's never been beat since 1968. Never been, you know, changed. And so he actually, he was sort of a, a celebrity, and he recorded some albums of music, okay. and 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 he was like an organ virtuoso, and he played a Hammond XX oh, or wow. an X77, yeah. and so he. He put out a couple albums and they're really good. Wow. Like they're really good. They've got these like, sort of crazy uh, like arrangements. He does a lot of, you know, like it was very typical of the mid 60s. There's a lot of sort of, you know, Burt Backrack reimaginings yep. going on. The girl from Ipanema is on there, you know, and like the look of love. And, yep. you know, so it's like, but there's these crazy like organ arrangements and, and sort of like, you know, it's a, it's a mix of like jazz. It, there's like some fusion going on, like you know some blues and 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 then like you've got this this organ that's sort of constantly bursting in, yeah. <laughs> just like oh, excuse me, and he just you know it just explodes in, <laughs> and but so they've sort of those have been blowing my mind actually quite significantly. Okay. So and that that and then the new Melvin's album came out and that's really great. And then uh, of course I've been you know because I'm working on a project, I just I've been listening to a buttload of uh, just obsessively listening to uh, a lot of the Meat Puppets. Right, yes, you were saying something, I think, on Facebook that you were uh, going to get an interview with him? I did. I, I, right. did, I did talk to him. It was, it was a lot of fun, um, and uh, I'm going to share it soon. So. Ah, cool, very good. 
All right. Um, let's see. I'll go through. Oh, have, have you got anything more that you want to talk about? Or? Oh, yeah. Two more things. Real yeah, fast. Go, go for it. Sorry. Since, yep. since you mentioned Mojo Magazine earlier, yep. if you aren't aware, this new issue has the Beach Boys and Pet Sounds on the cover. Oh. And what I've been listening to is there's a CD. And oh, by the way, the article is just atrocious. It is one of the worst pieces of music writing I've ever read in my life. Really? It is totally cliche and rude to, to Beach Boys. And I, I'm really shocked by that because I've, I've read so many wonderful articles in Mojo about the Beach Boys over the years. And so, but the the album, the, the free CD that comes with Mojo, this this issue is incredible. It's, a, it's just a bunch of uh, bands I've actually sort of never heard of covering songs from Pet Sounds. Right. With, now, with the exception of Flaming Lips. The Flaming Lips are on there. Yep. And there's a cover of, um, I can't remember what's on there. But I'm just sort of obsessively listening to this album this, a lot, too. You know, I... I... Just to sort of jump in there for a second, like I know that uh, that's a common thing that Mojo do. They get a lot right. of acts to mm-hmm. recreate an album. I'm a little bit wary of it. I mean, I know that. Uh, look, I, I can think of uh, two cases in particular. One where the results were fantastic, and one where the results were absolutely, with ex- with the exception of one song, abominable. The the one that really worked for me was uh, Highway 61 Revisited. Um, they, the acts who went on their way, you know, uh, as you would expect, you know, reverential of uh, of Dylan, and um, came up with some uh, you know, some really great results. Actually, I'm not sure if that was a Mojo or an Uncut magazine, but either way, regardless, that was what was done. Uh, and I, in particular, I think you know Dave Alvin of the Blasters doing Highway 61 revisited. Oh man, I. I love his voice, and it just worked so well on that song. But you know, that was a that was a really good album, all, all up. Um, and on the absolute negative side, uh, Mojo did uh, "Revolver" uh, by the Beatles uh, with, with a whole bunch of acts, and with the exception of the Handsome Family, who I absolutely love, where they they did Eleanor Rigby, and it, it doesn't appear on any of their other albums, so I can't toss this CD out. But the rest of it was just. I, I think the best songs were just meh, but the worst of it was absolutely repulsive. Um, so I, I, yeah, look, when when you if you say that this Pet Sounds one is worth a listen, then I'll I'll, I'll search out the magazine. But oh, some of those things I can be yeah, I, I imagine a bit touch and go. No, no, I listen. I I agree with you. This is I you know I took it on chance, and I was really really pleased with the result. Actually, in fact, they they sort of hook you in, and once you get through it, you know, and you read the magazine, you see that there's another track missing from the CD that you have to go to the website to get, and it's yeah. this really great version of Good Vibrations. Oh, uh, cool. This this, this all girl sort of like bluegrass group out of Nash- oh, Nashville. Wow. Did. Really yeah. great, and then that's sort of that sort of kept my mind open and I started thinking about other versions of covers of the Beach Boys I had heard over the years and so I started tracking those down so like I have like I think like 50 different you know covers of Beach Boys songs over the years I think I have actually 10 covers of Good Vibrations <laughs> all ranging from they... 70s country and it's just like man this is awesome so, so a lot of them are significantly different Oh yeah, and there's some really great ones. There's like some sort of indie rock versions on there, and uh, it's really great. There's yeah, like there's a, a really great version of "Wouldn't Be Nice" on there, and uh, it's just the name. The people that are on there escape me because I'm not that familiar with a lot of them. But um, you know, there's another. Speaking of Beach Boys covers, there's another album I want I wanted to actually urge you to check out, which is. I'd heard about a while back, and I, it's a free album. You can just download it. Mm. 
um, for free. It's this this sort of like DJ hip hopper uh, named Will C. Mm. And he did this album called Till I Die, which is just an entire album of bizarre like re- hip hop remixes of Beach Boy songs. Oh wow! And it's there's like it's like some weird like trance. There's like some you know it's like he sort of did this sort of massive attack kind of you know. <laughs> remix on Beach Boys songs. So he takes okay. like versions of Beach Boys songs and he also remixes them with actual audio interview snippets with Brian like talking about music. <laughs> it's some of the weirdest, okay. most interesting things I've I've ever heard. I, I do want to urge people to check it out because it's pretty cool actually. Okay, I'll do a do a Google search on that, see uh, what I come up with. Alright, um all right, I'll throw in a few things I've been listening to over the last couple of weeks since I recorded um I mean, look, inevitably, I'm going to be listening to a whole lot more, you know, through the iPod. But, you know, albums that I really actively took out of the collection to uh, have a bit of a play. Um, first one I want to talk about, and I can't remember if I brought this up in a previous episode of the podcast, is uh, this Irish rockabilly singer, uh, Imelda May. Um, I think I caught hold of her first, oh, I don't know, a couple of years ago through... Um, or maybe a year and a half ago, I don't know, uh, through uh, an edition of uh, uh, The Word, which is a really interesting uh, English music magazine, very different in approach from uh, Mojo and Uncut. Uh, a bit hard to describe in content and maybe a little bit more political. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's a great read. And they, they have a bonus CD every month of you know, new music that you should be listening to. Um, and I, look, I don't get these magazines every month. I just, oh, I might grab one at random, you know, where, oh, yeah, I've got a few bucks extra. Okay, I'll just see, you know, oh, what's in the, what's in this edition? Okay, there's enough in this edition to warrant because a lot of these, you know, they're all imported and they can be pretty expensive. But um, but I got that edition and hadn't heard of Imelda May. And the track from uh, her album Mayhem just really stuck out amongst all the songs that were on this CD. So I went out and got Mayhem and, man, yeah, just... A really, really great uh, CD there. Uh, she'd had another couple of albums out before that, but um, uh, Mayhem was the most recent one. I think it might have even been re-released with a whole bunch of remixed bonus tracks. But um, you know, for mine, you know, I think this was enough. You know, but there's some really great songs on this. Uh, you know, she, had, it's. I know that you know, rockabilly can be like uh, people will approach it for style. But what I love about this album is that the songwriting is so strong, and it's not just pure rockabilly because you know she's got uh, a trumpet player in the band which is not something that you imagine you know works in uh, traditional rockabilly so it's not just that but you know uh, but yeah, the, the the composition uh, works really well you know she pulls back on a couple of songs a little bit more uh, ballad driven but you know it's not overproduced the songs are uh, I, they're, they're earthy uh, melodic she's got a great voice and I introduced uh, the album and showed a, a, a film clip to a, a work colleague um, you know took a look at Imelda and, and said well as Jerry Seinfeld once said in an episode she has qualities attractive to the superficial man um, <laughs> she, very easy on the eyes but yeah very talented uh, singer songwriter and she also there was an album that came out last year um, might have been it was uh, Basically, Jeff Beck uh, took Imelda and her band to record this album called Rock and Roll Party in tribute to uh, the late, great Les Paul. So um, there's a a bunch of... It it opens up with a few songs, a few traditional rock and roll songs that uh, her husband 
uh, uh, Daryl Hyam, I think his name is, um, sings on. He's a fantastic singer himself, and no slouch on the guitar play on the guitar work. But you know, he had to take a back seat because you know you don't try to show up Jeff Beck. Um, but once Imelda comes out from about you know the fourth or fifth song on the album. She's basically Mary Ford, um, and yeah, this is just an incredible album, an incredible tribute. But um, the one I've been listening to the last couple of weeks uh, has been uh, her album. Of, well, when would it come out? Probably would have been early 2011, maybe late 2010. Uh, Mayhem, really wonderful. Um, even Did you ever hear that recording of Les Paul beating Mary Ford up, like slapping her? Don't go telling me <laughs> stuff. You're making that up. You're making that up. I, I, I worship the ground that this guy walks on. Now you're going to tell me that he was a that he was a prick, a wife beater? No, it, it's like a it sh- it's stuff. like a shut up little man kind of thing. But Les Paul and Mary Ford, he's like, get in there and make me some chicken. And she's like, Les, don't. That, that, that's right, a I'm sketch. A I'm that's a, I'm that, that, that didn't happen for real. That didn't happen. For real. No, no, you're making that's that a up. Sketch. Good. Thank God for that. <sighs> I can I can breathe easy again. Um. Now, I've, I've got a lot of the albums out of Richard Thompson's collection, but an album I love to come back to it was the first thing that I ever bought. It was, it was a three-CD anthology. came out in the early 90s called Watching the Dark. Um, and this is just goes all over the place. But what I like about how this album is put out is rather than going in chronological order or rather than trying to go in some sort of, well, this song fits with this song fits with this song type of order, is they sort of break it up into uh, periods and there might be like four or five songs from this period or this album and then they'll go uh, somewhere completely different in his career and have three or four songs from this album. So a whole bunch of things that might fit together. All right, now that we've played you three or four Fairport Convention songs, we're going to go for you know four or five songs that cover his um, uh, Shoot Out the Lights period, you know, or, or three or four songs. So I, I, I like that approach to it. And... Um, as I say, I've I've got a good chunk. I've got you know, maybe two thirds of his albums, but I just like coming back to this anthology. It's a really well put together. I know that there are uh, some of the Richard Thompson purists who think that it was a you know, half-assed put together thing, but I couldn't agree less. Um, and maybe I'm just sentimental about it because it was the first thing of his that I paid attention to back in I think you know, 1990 or 91. So I've been playing a lot of that. Uh, and I guess probably. You know, maybe sort of related to Richard Thompson, uh, Bert Janch, uh, the uh, guitar player. He was known in his own right, but uh, also you know became part of uh, what was then considered a British supergroup in Pentangle. Um, and their album Basket of Light is another album I want to cover on the show. But uh, an album that uh, I, I think is possibly you know his most well-known album called L.A. Turnaround and just opens up with just one of the most gorgeous songs called Fresh as a Sweet Sunday Morning. Um, I really love this. You know, it, it's. Uh, I, I think, he, like Richard, he was another guy who you know, might have recorded in America, but still retains a lot of um, uh, his his. Uh, I, I don't know. I guess what you might call that the British style of folk music. But um, whatever he did, you know, just. Uh, I mean, it was no secret that you know guys like Jimmy Page and Neil Young worshipped him, and you know for good reason. But he was a, he was a very laid back sort of player, and I had the good fortune to see him. He came. I, I missed. I, I was in London, I think, at a time when he was playing. I didn't get to see that, but he came to Melbourne. Um, I think in the mid to late nineties, and I was you know, really thrilled. Got the chance to see him play in a small club 
here in Melbourne. He was just mesmerizing, really wonderful player. Uh, the Beach Boys, of course, we've been talking yeah. about that. Um, and uh, I think the last thing I want to talk about, uh, I, I haven't, you know, I doubt this is in print, but, you know, through clips on YouTube and other means, um, an album, uh, there was a, 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 an anthology that I picked up, uh, well, three anthologies that have been boxed together called uh, Next Stop Soweto. And it was a, uh, a compilation of... Um, uh, or, or, so, uh, groups from the South African uh, music scene of of uh, the 50s and the 60s. Uh, like there was one uh, album that covered, um, I, I guess, more the Macumba, uh style that you know Paul Simon got so enthralled with when um, you know, inspired him to do Graceland. Uh, and then there was uh, an album of uh, soul and funk covers. That, you know, as sort of you know, they they were influenced by the American stylists of uh, of the South. Uh, but you know, as filtered through their own experience, and then there was a double CD of um, of uh, jazz music, all really, really wonderful stuff. But from the Soul compilation, there was a group called uh, Heshu Beshu Group, and they put out an album called Armitage Road. Now, there's been you know any number of groups like you know, the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Booker T and the MGs who've gone and you know, done a cover, uh, you know, that was similar to Abbey Road. Um, uh, even Sesame Street, you know, but uh, Heshu Beshu Group, they did you know, in a very political sort of way. They uh, had them crossing um, uh, a road, you know, they call it Armitage Road, but, you know, not for them crossing something, you know, not for them like uh, a rich uh, British pop group that's crossing um, a, a road in a very affluent area of London. No, this is this is uh, urban decay um, in uh, South Africa. Uh, it, it was just a you know, really fantastic cover. Um, I mean, the, the music is you know, not Beatles inspired. It's not you know their take on on Abbey Road or anything like that. But it was a great front cover, and their their music is just really a, a, a fantastic take on. Um, on uh, soul and, and funk music that was coming out of uh, of America uh, at the time, but you know their take on it. So uh, this this album Armitage Road is uh, really fantastic, and I'd love to sort of know if there's a CD, uh, if it's in print or you know, heaven forbid, if I could find it at a secondhand um, vinyl fair or something like that. I'd love to have it on vinyl. But have, um, have you have you heard of this thing? It's called the um, how is it called? The internet. What, what's that? What, 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 what's, what's this internet thing? I understand there's this thing called electronic mail. Right. And, ah. <laughs> no, I, listen, I love when those compilations come out. Like, that reminds me of, uh, I'm, you're probably familiar, there was, uh, you know, there's that label out of the UK called Soul Jazz Records. Yes, yes. That puts out like the 100% Dynamites. Mm, and, yep, yep, so yep. Those, those comps are just always so good. They are. So they are. good, yeah. Um, I, I imagine it's the sort of thing that... Um, yeah, it, it's not the, the Heshu Besha group is not too dissimilar from uh, what comes out of a lot of that soul jazz label. So, um, yeah, but yeah, look, was, next stops, next stop, next stop Soweto um, is okay. the compilation. That, it's a porn film here. There's a porn film called that. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. I'll send you a copy. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> porn jazz, you know, porn Forget porn the wah wah, we're going to get some drums in there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're we're here 38 minutes into um, our big star special. We've not really talked that much about them. So what we might do is take a bit of a break, 
And then um, we're going to come back and talk about uh, Big Star. Remember them? They were the group that we we're going to talk about on this episode of Love That Album. So um, uh, uh, Morris here, Justin over there. And we'll be back after uh, uh, this break and talk about Big Star and Number One Record and other Big Star stuff. You're listening to Love That Album. Today's exercise is name identification. Now repeat after me. Big Star. Big Star. Big Star. New group called Big Star and the album Number One Record. A lot of excitement about this album. We were recording music that we were excited about. <laughs> right, there were the expectations. We thought we were going to be rich and famous. I don't remember rock star moments. I never really saw any groupies around Big Star. We almost never played a gig. If we had fans anywhere, I didn't know about it. Got all these great reviews. The record's great. What you know? What is going on out there? It was a mystery. I was never a band. It was a songwriting and recording experiment. It's the mystery that, that's kept it going. Thank God. And we're back from break. Morris here, Justin over there. Love That Album is the podcast that you've downloaded off this, what did you call it? Internet. Internet. The, interne- the internets, I believe it, is what it's called. Right. Okay, good. So, this thing that Al Gore invented, I'm not sure if you know who he is. Oh, right. He's, he, sort, he, of, he's sort of popular over here. Oh, right. Okay. He's, oh, look, I, I'd, I'd like to know about him, but I think he's a bit inconvenient, so don't want to go down that road. Um, so, yes, How truthful is that? <laughs> indeed. Um, so we're, we're here to uh, talk about uh, Big Star and their first album, Number One Record. Now, as I mentioned earlier on in the show, um, Justin and I both discovered a mutual love of this album um, through, uh, I think we're putting a Facebook post on the Love That Album Facebook page that it was the 40th anniversary, and, and uh, my my friend Pat Monahan. Uh, who uh, works here in a uh, in a great little CD store here in Melbourne? Uh, made you know, made some reference to um, how much how he loved the album, and then Justin came along and said, "Oh wow, here's here's some information you should know. You should know A, B, C, Ds." So um, look, I'll I'll let you uh, get things started. Give us a bit of a historical context. Well, I don't you know I don't even remember what I wrote on Facebook to be honest with you, uh-huh. but but what I can tell you is is you know I, like I said I have a sort of a long term love affair with this with this band and this album mm-hmm. going back to the early mid nineties and and what's so interesting about this band is you know there's been so much and this album for that matter there's been so much written about them do you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying yep. like with the invention of this internet if you will <laughs> there's been so much stuff put out there and so much sort of you know, fake information in terms of people just sort of skewing the facts or whatever. And and there's actually a wonderful book out there, uh, you know, that 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 came out a few years ago. And there, I know there's a documentary on the way as well about the band. But I had heard but, that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, this band obviously Big Star comes from Memphis, Tennessee, and they're sort of you know sort of a classic tale. And it's sort of like I feel like. 
you know, this album came about by the stars aligning and, you know, the fates all sat down and had a talk and the river stopped flowing and the birds <laughs> stopped flying and this album was made and it's here for everyone and the perfect, and it came out, you know, when it came out, no one bought it because no one could buy it actually because it was horribly distributed. And so, you know, while it did get sort of unanimous critical reviews across the board from every magazine that reviewed it, no one could actually buy it. Mm. And so that was sort of the downfall of it. But, you know, these guys come about, um, you know, Memphis, Tennessee in the, in the mid-60s, no different than any town like Detroit, for example, with a thriving music scene, record labels producing music. And, you know, we have uh, Alex Chilton, of course, who everyone seems to think is the, the god behind Big Star, which I'm going to actually take a stance later and say that's not <laughs> yeah, the case. Yeah, that's part of what you but, spoke about on Facebook. Yeah, yeah, I have big problems with people giving him more credit than he deserves. But, um, <laughs> oh. and, and, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I don't know if it's because, like, I had such a, uh, you know, miserable encounter with him, but we'll talk about that later. But, but anyways, um, so, you know, have, you have this amazing community, which, I mean, think about it. Memphis, Tennessee, the mid '60s. You have Elvis Presley there. Okay, you have you have Sun Records, the Ashes of Sun Records. <laughs> you know, you have Stax Records. You know, I'm from Detroit, and I'll tell you right now that I prefer Stax over Motown. Mm, okay, mm. so you have this sort of amazing, you know, ground zero for all this soul music and, and this sort of rock and roll, and you have these guys all coming together, sort of crisscrossing each other in life. And sort of encountering each other, and, and you know, you can see all these all these influences sort of took hold. You had the early '60s. You have all these guys sort of fascinated and obsessed with the Beatles and the British New Wave because you had nothing but soul music on the radio there. And then when the British invasion hits, you have the Who, the Stones, you know, the Kinks, the Beatles, all placing and putting a major influence in you know on these guys. And so you can, and you can sort of see that. I mean, you can definitely hear a Beatles influence in anything Big Star does. Without Look, I, doubt. I was I was going to say like probably the first thing I was going to say when we we're going to talk about the album itself was, uh, I mean, I'll save my story later for how I first actually heard them. But the first time when I put on the album track one side one, I thought, oh, it's a British group. And yeah, you know, yeah. Until it was it wasn't until you know I read through the through the liner notes in the CD that. Oh shit! They're out of Memphis, but but yeah, right. no, go yeah. on. Yeah. And it, that's it, it the sounds so British. That's the interesting part about it too. Is you know you have you have for me, Big Stars is has always been about Chris Bell, and Chris Bell, you know, he started off as sort of this anglophile in the sense that he you know would often talked about like how he wished he had been born in england because he loved english music so much and and you have uh, you know him as a teenager making starting this band what were called the jinx and it was sort of a ripoff of the kinks mm. and but it was jy um and x i think and but anyways, th- there's a 10 inch out there of everything they recorded on norton records by the way if anyone's interested but but anyways if you listen to those four songs those four songs i also think are on the, the keep an eye on the sky box set for big star i'm not, I'm not 100 sure but anyways you listen to those songs and you're like jesus this guy really likes the kinks <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. and so you can and you can sort of see this interesting progression for him in the sense that you have him starting this band, The Jinx. You have him crisscrossing and coming in and out of the lives of, of bass player for big star Andy Hummel and drummer Jody Stevens and then you know Alex Chilton as well. And they all sort of knew each other through high school, through the various high schools, and, and you know them meeting up and hearing about each other, then talking and setting up times to play, and then it sort of never happened. Then they come out of each other's, they come into each other's lives at later points. Really interesting. 
And and you have uh, Chris Bell, sort of the mainstay, and him and Andy Hummel um, starting. You know this group. Uh, they they basically become uh, sort of recording geeks. They mm-hmm. were sort of obsessed with production and you know the, the sort of the technical things because they love the Beatles and they saw what, sort of what the Beatles were doing in the sense of production. And so they you know they started studying production. And it all started at Arden Studios in Memphis, which is owned by this guy named John Fry. And Arden Studios actually picked up they had picked up a lot of the slack. They they picked up uh, they were basically recording a lot for Stax because Stax had such an output at the time that they couldn't even keep up and you know quote, literally produced the records they were releasing in, through in, in one studio so mm-hmm. they took on sort of Arden Records as you know they were sort of recording for Stax as well across town yep. so you have them re- starting studying recording under John Fry he gets really obsessed with that you know and you have their their interest in the Beatles their lives are crisscrossing, and then you have um, these two other guys come into the equation who are also sort of recording geeks named Thomas Eubanks and uh, and Terry Manning. And Terry Manning, which by the way, you know, Facebook I just posted. You saw the, uh, uh, the I did have a look at that. Yep, cover. yep, yep. Right. Shame on you for not liking that better than the Beatles version. I'm sorry. <laughs> but anyway, so they all became friends. You know, they started playing together, and then this band came out of that called Rock City, and they 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 sort of recorded an album uh, which never never was released until, you know, 30 years later. And if you sort of listen to Rock City, you, you sort of see right there, without Alex Chilton, <laughs> that this sound has already been formatted, the songwriting is already there, everything is put into place, and it's just missing one little element, and, and that's where Chilton comes in. Mm. So, I mean, you know, for someone to say that, oh, Alex Chilton, you know, he's sort of the brainchild behind Big Star, it's not really true because that sound was already formed way before he'd even come on board. And, and this, you know, the song, Chris Bell is an excellent songwriter. The songwriting was already in place. You know, seven of the songs that are on Big Star number one were, were sort of already done before Chilton even came on board. You know what? Because so. <laughs> when, you, when you mentioned this on Facebook, um, you know, a couple of months ago when we decided to do this, and you know, like, I mean, I, I'd listen, I'd listen to the album countless times, but sort of at to that point, hadn't identified which, you know, who was Chilton, who was Bell in terms of the songwriting. And, and I thought, you know, because like everyone else, I just oh, oh, well, you know, people say Alex Chilton's a brains. Okay, fine, Alex Chilton's a brains. And you came along and said, no, 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 Chris Bell is a brains. And, I mean, look, the truth is probably there that you know they both were. But when I got hold of I Am the Cosmos. And right. I knew what you were talking about. I thought, yeah. ah, right, this is the sound of number one record. Ah, okay, right, I get it. Whereas when you go to uh, Radio City and even further on down the line yes. to Third Slash Sisters, um, they they are nothing like number one record. And you, f- you work out, right, okay, I now see, what, you know, I mean, as much as I like what Alex Chilton did, and you know, but probably my passion for that album, I, I would be on the Chris Bell rah rah team, right? And and that's the thing is it, the numbers don't add up for Chilton in the sense that so you have this band called Rock City. The sound is already formed. The sound is already formed, you know. And then you have that band sort of not taking off. Like I said, the album never come out. To them, putting a band together called Ice Water. Mm. Which was uh, Chris Bell and I think Jody Stevens and Andy Hummel as well. And then uh, uh, Tom Eubanks, I think, was in that band as well. But that band, so they recorded some demos. And, and those songs on Icewater are, are absolutely fabulous. They've got this really great uh, Todd Rundgren kind of feel to them. Yep. But 
that was the situation. And so, and actually, I'm sort of getting ahead of myself because then you have Alex Chilton, who, of course, you know, grew up in Memphis as sort of this rich kid snob, and you had him <laughs> sort of trying to. He was the rich kid. He was born with a spoon, a silver spoon in his mouth. Uh, I and, wasn't Chris Bell. No, no, no. I, I, well, I mean, probably a little bit, but but I mean, Alex Chilton was really well off. But mm-hmm. anyway, so you had um, you know, him coming up, and then you had him trying to break into the music industry, and never could, and then guess what comes along? The box tops, mm-hmm. which were basically sort of like you know one of the first boy bands, if you think about it, because you had, <laughs> it's true, because look at they had, listen, they they were put together. It's not like they all formed a band. They were all they all auditioned. You know, they're all. The, the box tops were a brainchild of Dan Penn and Spooner Oldham at mm. American Studios, and American Studios was where Elvis Presley recorded, you know, Suspicious Minds and Kentucky Rain in the Ghetto, and 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 Chips Moman. Uh, actually, I think Dan Penn, one of those two guys, was a, a huge bigwig at Stax, and he had, they sort of had a falling out, and they went off and started their own studio. Mm. And so they they were sort of the brainchild. They're the guys that wrote the letter, and they wrote Cry Like a Baby, and all those songs. Like the box tops never wrote those songs mm. and and Chilton sort of you know he had the uh what's sort of interesting about Chilton is he actually be, when the box tops did get fame you know they sort of went off and and they he sort of struck up a friendship with the beach boys and Alex they're, they're really big friends together Alex, the Wilson brothers and Alex Chilton and there's a, there's a great story where actually where Chilton actually hung out with Dennis Wilson he was there during the famous Charles Manson thing and he met oh, Manson wow. and okay. and um but you know Chilton claims that Carl Wilson actually really taught him how to play guitar. And um, he stayed with Brian Wilson. He hung out with Dennis Wilson a lot. And, and of course, what's really interesting is there was a mutual interest there, too, because if you a fan of the Beach Boys, there's a a great bootleg out there called Laid in Hawaii, which features uh, a 1967 concert in Hawaii with Brian Wilson actually back at the concert and playing with the band. And and the box tops open for them that night, and there's a cover (laughs) on that bootleg of the Beach Boys covering the letter. Oh, wow. It's 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 pretty interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I'd like to yeah track that one down. It's I mean it's it's on YouTube, but um, okay. but yeah, so they you know they struck up a friendship. So what Sheldon sort of brings to Big Star is that Beach Boys aesthetic, because you know you have him, um, a you know bringing Beach Boys harmonies to Big Star, but also you have this sort of because and then also he was really big into folk music too. So you have that sort of folk troubadour kind of Bob Dylan thing. I think going into Big Star Lib too with some of those acoustic ballads like Thirteen on there. Yep, and um, which is sort of which is really great and and. Going, so going back to the story, how they connected in the sense that so Chris Bell, the guys, take ice water demos. They go to New York to try to shop them around, and nothing happens. And it's at that time that they remember that Alex Chilton lives in New York because he sort of was married. He had a kid at like 17 years old, and that falling out, he sort of left them and moved to New York with this other girl. And so they sort of reconnected, you know, and Chilton was like, listen – I love, you know, he, he was a fan of Chris Bell's music, and he said, listen, let's stay in New York, and we'll become like the next Simon and Garfunkel, <laughs> you know, and so he's like, nah, that's not what I really want to do, so, you know, they go back to Memphis, Chilton eventually comes back to Memphis, starts hanging out at Arden, and, and, and the crux of Big Star happens. Okay. Everything is born, you know, they had, Chilton brings to the plate from the start, he brings uh, uh, 13, he brings the Ballad of El Goodo, and um, another song. And those are the three songs that he brings. Mm. And, you know, what's sort of interesting is these songs, like, feel uh, from Big Star's number one record and, you know, My Life is Right. And those songs had been percolating in Chris Bell's sort of mind. And, and he, they'd been playing those songs in Rock City. And they'd been playing those songs in Ice Water. And so this band was sort of 
culminating for him. Like this was his band. That Chris, this was sort of Chris Bell's brainchild. That sound, like you said, you hear it in the cosmos was Chris Bell's brainchild. And so you can see that progression. He's just constantly pushing that sound in those songs yep. into no, the big star number one record. Mm. And so, you know, what, what Chilton brings, like I said, I think, and just like you agreed, is that, that sort of folky sense, that Beach Boy harmony. And also, you know, I don't think Alex Chilton is, a, I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but I don't necessarily think he's a great musician. I think he's a great poet. I think he's a great songwriter, lyrically, but not a songwriter in the sense like, you know, he's no Brian Wilson. You know, he's no, he's no Chris Bell. How's that? Mm. <laughs> so... <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like it just—it's—it's just, it's sort of if you, the numbers don't add up because if you look at the songs Chilton was writing prior to Big Star, like you—you know—you have like uh, the the infamous uh, unreleased uh, Alex Chilton 1970 album or whatever. You have well, like Free I'm, Again. I want no, to talk. I want to talk with you about that. Okay. Well, okay, let's let's use that as a segue because I've actually got a couple of notes. Um, uh, okay, so I'd only heard that fairly recently. And I mean, on on the one hand, you know, it it sounds like a bit of a hodgepodge, and yet, you know, I, I definitely do find the songs quite appealing. I mean, you know, there's "Free Again," you know, comes on, you know, there's a bit of a uh, Graham Parsons country feel, and I want to talk about that too. Actually, uh, there's a comparison between him and Graham Parsons. I think we can make, uh, you know, "Smile for Me," you know, the song off that "Free Again" album is a sound that I think would have fit perfectly on number one record. Um, all I really want is money, you know, which has a, a bit of an early 70s Stones-like swagger. Um, I wonder if that was uh, Alex's modus operandi. But um, but the, the, the highlight, uh, which is strange because it's not out of his pen, is Sugar Sugar. Now, my, my friend Pat Monaghan was saying to me that he said, when you listen to that song, it's... Uh, you use the great word. It's you know absolutely lascivious. You know that every time you know you sort of hear that you know, that Archie's version, it's this nice, sweet little song. But you know, in Alex Chilton's hands, you know, uh, sugar, sugar sounds like you know, quick, get down on the floor here and let's fuck. You know, it's it's um, it right, really yeah, it's yeah. not where not where he went with big stuff. But it, really, this is for me. I, I love this album. I really enjoy it. Um, Free Again. It, it's um, as I said, stylistically, it's a, you know a lot all over the place. But I don't know if it was intended to be put together in the first place as an album, or if if these were just songs that he had uh, you know carted away or something. But but yeah, no, I I really like what's going on there. If you listen to Chilton, listen to a lot of the albums in his career, a lot of them all over the place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. and he's been he has been often at times criticized for self-sabotage. Like, you know, if there's been, there's great essays written about, um, uh, about third, third sister lovers as being sort of a self-sabotaged record, Yeah, you know? And so, but I just, it doesn't add up. This, the, 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 the songwriting for me, I know you just, you just told me all those songs you like, and, but you, yeah, I know she didn't like T-99 knew. <laughs> okay, which is one of the worst songs ever written. Yeah, I'm not okay. going to go there. We're not going to go there. <laughs> so, but anyway, that the doesn't add up for me in the sense that you have those songs, then you have like these sort of nostalgic, lyrically romantic songs that are on number one record, yep, and right. you don't have that in the previous, the Chilton writing before he comes on board with Big Star. Mm. You don't have that. Mm. You, but you have a consistency across the board writing-wise with Chris Bell. 
and and Chris Bell again being the sort of audiophile he was, and and the sort of you know obsessive recording guy. I mean, he's he, Chris Bell is credited with with the guy. He was he was he was the engineer on Number One Record. And if you, I mean, it shows because if you look at it and you listen to it, you, that the production of Number One Record is pristine. It's it's it is for a me it's straight record through and through. For me, it's streets ahead of um, Radio City and Big uh, and uh, Third slash Sister into yeah, production for sure. And look what happened there. You Radio City had no Chris Bell. It had Third Record had no Chris Bell. Mm-hmm. So you see that jump. You see a minimalist songwriting approach in those songs as well. Having said that, you I know, know some people see that rougher side. I'm not one of them, but I know some people see that sort of. Um, more, I don't know, not minimalist, but you know that that sort of rougher edge as as an asset. And now you know, you've got people coming out of the woodwork saying the fact that you know Jody Stevens is touring like a live start to finish of, uh, of Sisters. Uh, I don't know. I, well, I'm not sure how how many shows he's doing, but I think he started off in London, and uh, in, I don't know. I presume he's touring the states with it as well. And people, you know, just sort of wetting themselves, saying this is the seminal big star album. And I'm thinking. Um, looking, I mean, if he if he were to come here, I'd go. But you know, I'd be really it, it'd be number one record. I'd want to hear, or even you know, Radio City. Right. That, that that album's just oh, I don't know. I guess I can't listen to Kangaroo because you know Jeff Buckley did an absolute terrible, very wanky, um, very pretentious version of it. And I I love him, but but you know, I went to see him live and I had to suffer through seventeen minutes of extended. <laughs> I mean, I know that the big right. is only three minutes, but I just, ugh, you know, I can't and, go there. And that's the thing about, uh, listen, number, th- the third record for me is, is sort of unlistenable. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I'll tell you, I mean, there's some great songs on it, but they're, some of the highlights of that album for me, a third record, are Thank You Friends. And, yeah. and I think yeah. what Stroke It Noel, I don't know if, I can't remember if the name changed for the, uh, I can't remember. But anyway, and then some of the other ones, that are standouts, they're children's covers, you know, like the Femme Fatale cover, mm. or like, you know, on the Raiko disc, the, ver- the the bonus song, or the Kinks, uh, End of the Day, or whatever. You oh, I don't think those I've are heard some that. Of, those are some of the best, those are some of the best highlights for Third Record, and Radio City, for me, is is a great album, but, I mean, I just, like, we talked about off, off recording, about that NPR star, where that guy actually said, well... Radio City is actually a better record. Nah, nah, nah. <laughs> I wanted to like punch my computer screen because <laughs> I, I the, the sheer ignorance of that guy. Yeah, it was just like you know at the end of that in the story on NPR they should have you know they so this guy writes for this blog and they should have said like we pulled the guy off the street to talk about this, literally <laughs> because I'm just like really yeah. like so I mean and but I mean no, Radio City has some great songwriting on it. I'm not I'm not I'm not saying Alex Chilton is a bad songwriter. I think he's a really great songwriter. And he does have a great pop sensibility. But for me, we're talking about number one record, which is, again, a perfect record production and songwriting-wise. Yeah. And I just I don't think that Alex Chilton – and it's so documented that it's, if you really care enough about Big Star to go off and do research and read, it's pretty clear and documented that, that Chris Bell was sort of the, the, the mastermind behind it. and He was sort of in charge, and he was the pro- sort of producing, and he was sort of the engineer. And so, I mean, and it really shows because – when he leaves, everything changes. When he, mm-hmm. I mean, and he leaves for a specific reason. He leaves because, and I think it's it's very interesting because you know they wanted Chilton in the band because he had a name because he was sort of semi-famous, yep. and they thought that that would really help them sell records. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a chem- there was sort of a kismet there too. Like you know they they you know they really wanted 
to become a sort of Lennon and McCartney, if you will, because if you look at how those songs are presented on the album, it is always Chilton Bell, or you know. And they even went so far as Chris Bell was so sort of passionate about being the Beatles that he even went so far as calling like Terry Manning or Thomas Shoebanks those guys that sort of, you know, were sort of the Kickstarters for this whole thing and, and saying, look, do you mind if we take your name off the song because we really want it to be Chilton and Bell? Yeah. And he was like, no, <laughs> you're not taking my name off that song. Yeah. So, I mean, they were sort of passionate. He was sort of the driving force, and he pushed and pushed and pushed. And, and you know, when that album came out and, and it got all these reviews but sold nothing, you know, they only pressed like 4,000 copies of that album when they, on that first run. Mm. And it sold nothing, and it destroyed him. You know, it, it actually it destroyed Chris Bell to the point where he was he put, was put into a mental institution for a mm, short time. Wow. Uh, look, let me ask you this: uh, I've I've read that Alex had been fairly disparaging about uh, the big star days, you know, in interviews over the years. Now, was I mean, you probably would have read more interviews than I have. Um, but was he disparaging about his big star days? Or, I mean, was he, so I should rephrase it. Was he disparaging about them artistically? If he was, was he disparaging about them artistically or, or just because they, they couldn't get anywhere? My sense is, is that he is disparaging in lyric for the lyrics. Like he's, he has been, in fact, I just saw a little thing about this the other night where he doesn't like talking about them those days because, he feels like it's it's sort of the, the the lyrics he was writing at the time were sort of crap and and overly teenage you know nostalgic BS and so I mean a lot of people have sort of said that in terms of why he doesn't like talking about that but at the same time that sort of enrages me because I'm like okay listen so this is crap and it's sellout it's teenage nostalgic BS and so but you're gonna play it every night. So it's like what kind of sellout are you, Alex Chilton? <laughs> like I just have big problems with it. It's like Everyone's, you know, Alex Chilton, big star. It's like, he's a genius, a pop genius. And like, okay, well, um, listen to I Am the Cosmos then to see if you still want to write that. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. It's, it's pretty frustrating to me because it's like, you know, I just, I really identify with Chris Bell in the sense he was this, you know, you get the sense that he was sort of this really tortured and conflicted guy with a lot of demons, you know? Yeah. And to sort of, it's like, imagine, imagine yourself like being in that position, like you have... You're on the cusp, you know. You're just like on the edge, and you can almost touch it. You can almost like taste it. Mm. And then to have something ridiculous like uh, you know, poor record label distribution stop you from achieving what you want is just gotta. It's it's gotta be just. It's gotta destroy you. Yeah. Like, how do you live with yourself? Like, you know, I don't understand. Like the rest of the guys are like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, going into a mental institution because he's so out of shape about this. You know, and, and the, the you know ultimately. The the poor handling of the album is what sort of destroyed the band because, you know, they had never even intended to become a band. They just were a bunch of studio geeks that wanted to record some great music. And, and you know, the name Big Star came, like I'm sure you know, as they were just sort of sitting around one day and across the street from the studio was a yeah. grocery store and yeah. called Big Star Groceries. And that's how – I mean, and think about how ballsy is that, though? You think about, okay, we're calling our band Big Star. I mean, there's a sense of, there's a sense of irony and a sense of humor to that. We're calling our band Big Star. And our first our record's going to be number one record. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it's incredible. Yeah. It's incredible what balls these guys had. You know, yeah. at such an early age and and such expertise in the studio. You know, mm-hmm. it's incredible. Yeah. It is. It is from it's. It's listen. I'll, I'll go on record. I'll t- it's my top three records of all time. 
number one record is. Well, that, that's it's a record yeah. I can never get tired of listening to. I can listen to a hundred times in a row, never get tired of it. Look, I, whether I'd put it in my top three, I don't know, but it, it'd be really, really, really high up there. And I, I have played it countless times. Look, I, I remember. Um, I mentioned, I alluded to this earlier. I was going to talk about this. A friend of mine, how I first got into the album was maybe, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago when a really close friend, uh, around my birthday, he went and got me a couple of, uh, CDs, both twofers, you know, so there was one CD which had Big Stars number one record in Radio City and the other album which had, uh, the Flying Burrito Brothers, uh, Gilded Palace of Sin and Burrito Deluxe. Both and classics. So I've, I've always associated, because you know, I got those two albums at the same time, I have an association of the two. But when I came to write some notes for this podcast, I got to thinking about it and thought, well, you know what? It's There are other reasons that I, I could probably mentally have this association. You know, Both groups had a songwriter involved who'd been um, uh, involved in a fairly big group prior to um to joining uh you know the respect you know well, big star with alex chilton and um uh, uh flying burrito brothers for uh grand passing you know having been so you know, the box tops and 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 the birds um uh, both well as you've gone and pointed out you know with with, with chilton but also the same for parsons both you know, uh uh rich boys who you know, decided that they wanted to play in a band um uh both you know, both ended up recording an album that were hugely influential amongst other musicians who really took their cues from both of these bands. I mean, I'm, I'm not really sure. I sort of haven't done my research into uh, the Beretta Brothers, how uh, successful, how, like in, in terms of um, uh, you know, financially successful or, or you know, popular into the, the country mainstream they were. I suspect not, but... Certainly, both of these bands also had the, you know, the common link of being musicians' favourites, and um, so you know, forever I've had that association uh, between the two. And, and really, it's, it's you know, no big thing for me to sort of go take take down number one record, have a listen to that, and then go listen to Gilded Palace of Sin, following you know, straight after that. They're, they're, they're musically, I wouldn't necessarily say poles apart, but you know, they're not necessarily in the same ballpark, and yet. I can see these similarities, and they're you know both uh, you know, groundbreaking in their way. Um, the other thing is sort of thinking back to Big Star for me. I was sort of thinking, well, what albums have I got in my collection? What groups have I got in my collection uh, that you can tell for sure that these were that, that Big Star were huge influences on them? And you know, certainly you know, groups like the Teenage Fan Club and. Uh, the replacements. Actually, I've, I've been negligent to mention that the theme for uh, "Love That Album" is the song "Alex Chilton" by um, by the Replacements. Right. Uh, and and you know probably in in the uh, Justin Bozong household, you'd probably figure that well, you know, fuck that song should be called Chris Bell. But uh, never mind. <laughs> be that as it may, um, you know, it, you know, so a little bit of Alex Chilton has been you know right from day one. To, you know, so at least you know we'd have to say that Big Star, the the patron saints of uh, love that album. So, but yeah, Teenage Fan Club and the Replacements and you know Matthew Sweet, and I'd even say Wilco. You know, circa you know their Summer Teeth album. Um, sure. Uh, Jeff 
Tweedy would you know, surely have to have been a, uh, um, a, a big star fan. Um, and, and probably countless others who I can't even think of off the bat. But, you know, it's, it's a wonderful thing because you come up with, you know, a great album like that. And the legacy is that you get heaps and heaps of other great albums, which, you know, they, they, they've all got, you know, their own songwriting imprint on it. But you know that, you know, uh, that big star just looking over their shoulder, and you know it, it's great. This you know, it's very biblical. You know, a big star begat you know, this group, and they begat another group, and it, it's it's fantastic. You know, they give pop a good name. You know, because I think you know too often nowadays, you know, people sort of you know, will say, "Oh yeah, pop music that means Christina Aguilera or or, or Lady Gaga or whatever." And I think no, you know, pop is is Matthew Sweet is pop. This is pop. Um, so I, I love the fact that they have uh, that they have this legacy. Uh, and, and but of course, you know, nothing comes from uh, just out of the ether. I mean, uh, you went and said, you know, well, they were hugely influenced by the Beach Boys and the Beatles and the Kinks. And uh, I, I think, you know, man, you know what you know, what great times. I mean, regardless of the fact that they didn't get the 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 popularity that they deserved, but. Um, you know what great times it was to say, well, you know, we've been listening to these to these groups, and this is what's going to rule our music. And um, I'm just you know, in love with that idea. Uh, I, I think that's fantastic. Um, anyway, uh, so I actually, I wanted to ask you because you mentioned that there was a book that had been written. Uh, it might be a different book to the one I'm thinking of, but the one I want to get. I know that there's a series of books called 33 and a Third, where there'll be an author who'll talk about one album. And, uh, there's um, so, you know, a lot of great classic albums out there. I think it's about 80 or 90 books in this series. And I know that there's been one written about number one record, but I can't find a local bookshop that's got it, so I'm going to have to use this internet thingy to um, to order a copy. But is that God, the book I that you hate those books. No. You, you don't like them? I hate those books. They're what, like, well, first off, they're like, they're like, you know, dissertations really in theory and like it's like you know 120 pages of some mumble jumble when you can sum it up in a paragraph jeez give me a break talk about how how about listen talk about how the album makes you feel how does i mean you know i i like to feel things so it's like talk don't write about this and that like talk about the album give you a boner you know like that that's what i want to hear about so these books are more academic rather than than, yeah uh, well exactly like i'm i'm a school of i'm in the school of lester bangs when it comes to my rock journalism you know like i want to know that um you know elmer should i want to you know i put it out i want to feel it like i want to you know make sure maybe you want to run out and fuck my girlfriend in the street you know like (laughs) it's got to be powerful and visceral that's got to hurt (laughs) <laughs> so, no, the book I'm talking about came out a few years ago. It's called Big Star, The Short Life, Painful Death, and Unexpected Resurrection of the Kings of Power Pop. Okay. And it's written by Rob jo- Jovanic, I think is how you pronounce his name. Great book, really well-researched, really detailed. Uh, he interviews everyone involved in the history of the band. Uh, really great stuff. They even, you know, it even goes back. <laughs> they talk about like how they shot the album cover for number one record, like exactly how they did it, and you know yep. the reason behind it. And it's like, wow, like that's something I I wouldn't really expect to read about, you know, in, in a, a book about a band, you know. Mm-hmm. So, right. really cool stuff, yeah. But, um, yeah, you know, listen, you mentioned the Alex Chilton replacement song. Yep. Even I mean, you can do research. Even Paul Westerberg. Has, has spoken publicly about what a dick Alex Chilton was. <laughs> you know? Like, he's a dick. Big words coming yeah. out of Paul Westerberg. 
He's well. Listen, man. Whatever. I've met Paul, but anyways, um, yeah. So my story with Alex Chilton. Okay, go for it. So, two thousand two. You know, I'd been a huge. I think it was two thousand two, two thousand three. Um, I had been a huge admirer of Big Star for a few years, and you know, the only time I'd ever got to see them was they did an appearance on Jay Leno's Tonight Show. Here in America, and they're on 1995, 96, maybe around 94, because it was right around the time because they had released uh, the Big Star Live at Columbia University uh, CD, which was their very first reunion show ever, and it happened in Missouri on some college campus. Mm. So they were on tonight's show playing live, promoting that. So, um, you know, it was around this time, I was, you know, still. You know, I was really interested in going to concerts. I'd been to so many concerts, and a good friend of mine uh, named Andy Jones. He, uh, you know, we we had sort of done this thing where we started traveling for concerts, and and um, we stumbled across the what was called the Beale Street Music Festival in Memphis, Tennessee. Is this huge three day festival that happened every year, Man, and um, you know they had this just amazing lineups like Willie Nelson, Jerry Lewis, Grateful Dead. You know, all these just crazy. You know. Uh, just this huge hodgepodge of acts like LL Cool J, on the, you know, after that, following Mickey Hart's <laughs> drum plan or whatever, you know, it's weird, weird collections of weird music, you know, together on the same stage. And so the first year we went, I, we looked, uh, and the catalyst for that was we saw, not even headlining, mind you, just in the very bottom, big star. And we're like, I'm like, this cannot, this is not true. <laughs> and so I actually, I called, I called the, the, the promoting agency. I was like, is this, is this really a big star? Is this big star coming to concerts? And they're like, yeah, Alex Chill and Jody Stevie. I was like, okay. And so that was the catalyst. And we drove. It is Memphis, Tennessee is, is 14 hours from Detroit. Okay. So we hopped in a car in the rain and drove 14 hours straight and to the show. And it was in the middle of summer. And um, believe it or not, there was only 100 people there. And I, I got to be in the front row of a big star concert, yeah. right in front of Alex. Yep. And of course, it was him being as him and Jody backed by the Posies. What a horrible band that is! But anyways, there's no reason for them not to be the big star. But anyways, yeah. So saw them in concert. There was a, a guy behind us who was a, a local, and he was telling we were just friendly with him. We were talking. He's like, "Yeah, I heard a rumor that that after the show that Alex is gonna." come over to this bar in Memphis called Ernestine and Hazel's, which is sort of this really hot, trendy bar in Memphis. And it's like, used to be an old, uh, uh, house of ill repute, if you will. <laughs> and, um, and so, okay, cool. So, you know, we figured out where it was. We figured out it was just a few blocks from the, you know, the venue. So the concert, so we, you know, it was like, I don't know, midnight or something. We walked down there and there he was sure enough in the back room of this place. He's on stage with probably 20 people in this room. And he's playing music. And, um, it's really funny is he kept messing up. Like he couldn't even play the music right. He was playing <laughs> like it was him and a drummer and he kept trying to play the song. I keep, I keep on dancing by the gentries, yep. which was like another Memphis band uh, in the sixties kept messing it up. He restarted, restarted, restarted. And so he played uh, a little while. And then after that, um, he, uh, he got off the stage and he was outside and I had brought my, Big Star Vinyl album with me. Uh, yeah. and I was like, in an attempt to get an autograph, I was like, yeah, you know, who knows what will happen, you know. I like to keep those things optimistic. So, anyway, so I had it with me. You know, he was outside this on the back side of the thing. No one, was, no one was there with him. He was standing alone, smoking. 
And I walked up to him nice, you know, really polite. I've handled myself very well in front of celebrities over the years. And so I said, you know, Alex, I'm a huge fan. Like, I really am a huge admirer of Big Star. And, you know, I love such and such solo album, you know, the one that has, like, no sex on it, like, 84. And, you know, the the stuff you did with the cramps is great and, you know, all this stuff. And, and I was like, would you please sign my, my album? You know, I was like, I'm a huge fan. You know, we drove, like, 14 hours. You know, this was the best concert I've ever seen in my life. Mm. <laughs> you know, and he looked at me and looked me in the eye and he said, no, sorry, I, I don't want to sign that. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> and I said, I was, like, just, I was, like, destroyed. I just looked at him. I was like, okay. <laughs> and I just walked away. And as I got like 20 yards off into the distance down the corner of the street, I, I heard this girl mm. come up to him. I didn't even turn. And she said, Alex, can I have your autograph? He said, sure. Oh, you're <laughs> kidding. I'm not even joking. I was like, you son of a bitch. And that like that sort of tainted me yeah. for at least a year after. Every time I would think of it, I was like, you son of a bitch, Alex Chilton. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it kind of tainted me, man. But it was like. It was probably one of the best, um, you know, the shows I'd ever seen. You know, they had, they played all of Radio City. They played all of Number One Record. They played a few songs off a of third. They even played I Am the Cosmos. Oh wow! In tribute, yeah. it was just an incredible show. Incredible show. There was only a hundred people, and I was in the front row. It was, it was one of those sort of unforgettable concerts. Mm. And um, I, I have to ask, from a drummer's perspective, what was it like watching Jody Stevens? I mean, can you appreciate? Is he because he? What I really admire is you know he has. Maybe not a technical drummer, but um, he plays big. You know, he plays yeah. loud and big is what he yeah, does. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's great. You know, it's just like can you see in the, if you watch anything on YouTube, just kind of like what he was doing. You know, he had, yeah. had drum gloves on, and I mean, it was hot. I mean, it was a, it was Memphis in the South mm. <laughs> in the summer. You know, so it was like. Man, it must have been like at least ninety degrees, but I mean, I'm just covered in sweat, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. it was a, it was a big weekend that weekend because I had got to see Big Star, and plus the Stacks Museum had opened for the first time, and and um, I met Steve Cropper that weekend, and oh, Eddie Floyd God. was my tour guide. That's oh, <laughs> you know, so it was yeah, it was amazing. I got to go in the Stack Studio, and I was in Memphis. I was in the Sun Records Studio all on this weekend. You know, it was like this sort of orgasmic musical journey for me. Oh wow! Actually, I got a I got a work colleague um, who um, he he goes I think once a year over to the states and he came back after one time and says oh oh you would you would have liked it I was in Memphis went to the Stax Museum and, oh, fuck off you know I'll, I'll, one day I'll afford one day I'll afford to go but you know he, yeah. he just he throws it at me you know always says to me oh well you know I wasn't the one who decided to have kids and you know raise a family I can I can go every year. <laughs> When you're yeah, yeah, it's, you got You got to make the trip someday. It's it's a pretty cool place, mm. man. Even our, you know, our, it's really sad how much you know culturally people. You know, I'm sure there's not a lot of Memphians that probably have been. I mean, it's I, I'm surprised living in Detroit how many people that I encounter on a daily basis that I actually get time to talk to that haven't yep. been to the Motown Museum and it's in their own hometown. That would you know, be insane. Absolutely place. insane. That's, you know, you, so. you, even even if you're not necessarily that into the music, I mean, it's part of your history. I couldn't believe it. Uh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It's it's yeah, it's really intense to go there. Mm. All right, look at that point. Um, I think we might have another quick break, and then come back and go have have a bit of a discourse about the album, and decide which songs actually give us a boner. Um, and, and, all of them. Uh, <laughs> okay, all right, the whole album. 
Doing. You, you I'm up be, now. You, you want to be? You want to be Beavis? I'll be Butthead. You know. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm up now. Just thinking about talking about it. I'm number up. one. Number one yeah, records. Cool. It gives me a bonus. <laughs> I think I'm gonna go home and choke my chicken. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, if you're gonna, I'll be like, oh yeah. So if you're gonna do that, I'll do. Uh, uh number one record is cool. <laughs> I've always told my son, don't do that, don't do that. <laughs> All right, well, now we'll be back in a minute. Morris here, Justin there, you're listening to Love That Album. We'll be back in a minute. GGTMC Live for you, Fresh Yeah. Big Willie and the Samurai are at your service, breaking films down and turning them around, giving recommendations that are always on point. Visit ggtmc.com for more information. The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, bringing class to the trash since 1977. We're back again. Morris here in Melbourne and Justin over there in... In Se- I was going to say Seattle, fuck Detroit. Excuse me. Nirvana. Uh, <laughs> oh, dear, look, my excuse is it's eleven thirty-six p.m. here on Saturday night, so I'll um, I'll, I'll use that as my pathetic piss poor excuse. But anyway, ah, <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, so yes, uh, we're here talking about um, uh, the number one record that which was as we've discussed earlier, an irony. It was the name, not the position, of uh, Big Star's debut album. Uh, we've discussed uh, a, a whole lot of uh, you know, Big Star history, and now we're going to sort of you know, go through, you know, track by track through the album and what the songs mean to us and maybe, you know, lyrics and music and stuff like that, as we tend to do on this show. So the first track on the album is called Feel, and I remember the... I spoke a bit before about you know, when I first got the album, you know, as I said, about 10, 15 years ago, given to me as a present. And the first time I put this on, my first thought, as I, I'd already gone and said was, uh, and I thought it was an English album, but hearing Chris Bell's vocals on this, I, I thought, oh, hang on. Did Robert Plant make a cameo appearance? It's just something so plantish about this. I mean, did you get that sense? Yeah, I agree completely, and that's, you're not the first one to sort of point that out either. What's, what's sort of interesting about Feel is, it's, it's like, number one record is like a concept album, and it doesn't even know it. Mm. Like, mm. So you, you have, you have, if you look at like all these songs lyrically, okay, and, and the structure of them in terms of how they play out on the album, you have this song start. You have this feel, right? Which is, I feel like I'm dying. I'm never gonna be with you again. Mm, you know. Mm. So it's like he's broken up with this girl, and it's destroying him. And you 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 have this journey that starts with feel, where you have him feeling this, and then he's you know. Then they move on. He starts having this sort of nostalgic flashback, talking about this love affair. You know, and then at the end of the album, you have, and we'll talk about it, of course, I don't want to jump ahead, but you have Watch the Sunrise. They've, yes. they've rekindled and they're back together and they're watching the sunrise. It's a concept album. It doesn't even know it's a concept album. <laughs> Look, uh, uh, just going off that album for a second, but I remember um, I spoke about this very early on when I did uh, Get the Knack, but I'd listened to another podcast called Rock and Roll Geek. 
And the host of that show was interviewing Bert Nevere, the uh, guitar player of, of The Knack. And he, he said, look, I want to put it to that Get The Knack is, in fact, a concept album and you don't even know. It. It's a concept album about blue balls. Um, and, and, and I thought, oh shit, he's right. It is too. But yeah, I, I can, I, I totally see this. And, and look, yeah, well, as we get to the songs or, or make it, I mean, but it's, uh, you know, a, a teen, a, a concept album, I guess, about, uh, teenage frustration in, in parts. Although, um, I, I just sort of taking this song in isolation. What I really like about it, I, I'm a I'm a sucker for a song where the music says one thing and the lyric says something completely different. And you know, here he is. He's saying, "I'm." F- you've already gone and put it. I feel like I'm dying. I'm never going to live again. And yet the music is vibrant. It it the music says, "I want to live." I'm not. I'm going to live, but I've got. I want to scream out to the world about you know how happy I am to be alive, and the lyric is saying something so completely different. I love those contrasts, and and um, Chris Bell has really done a wonder here. And I, it, the other thing is, it this is probably a precursor um, to um, to glam music. I mean, I'm no fan of glam, but but there's something here about it that that. Oh, I don't know how how it can make a favourable comparison to a genre that never meant anything to me, and yet this is if glam had followed this path, it would have been for me a lot better. And yet there is something glamish about it. Does that make sense, or am I just talking shit? No, it does make sense. I'll tell you, there's there's sort of like this eminent fine line between glam and power pop. I think yep. you know because if you're gonna call a big star power pop, then you you have it's the it's any person's god given right to say that Kiss is power pop. Do you know, like, because yep. they they both were influenced by the Beatles. They both work in that sort of pop song structure, you know. So there's no reason why you can't. I mean, and Kiss has been called glam at times too. So mm. there's no reason why you can't fit Kiss into the power pop genre as well if you're going to label stuff. I, I got to say, actually, one a really great uh, cover version that Kiss did, I think, was that song uh, "Any Way You Want It." And I thought, wow, you know, they so completely get the 60s pop thing. But, you know, Gene Simmons is on the record as, you know, saying to him that, you know, the Beatles were God for him when he was growing up. So I, I can see that. And, I mean, even that a song which I don't particularly like uh, of theirs, you know, God gave rock and roll to you. I mean, that was a Rod Argent song. We were talking before about, yeah, uh, about the zombies. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so yeah, I, I can see that that's a good argument there. Um, well, remember that people all people always overlook the it is you know don't forget about the replacements covering Kiss's Black Diamond on Let It Be. Oh yes, yes, yes. And no one, no one ever remembers it. And, and there's some versions of 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 Let It Be on CD mm. that don't even include the songwriting credits for that. Okay, it was really weird. So I wonder if they like tried to just get around that, or I'm I'm sorry, I'm jumping. No, go, I'm no, go, please, kind of, no, so, please, yeah. no, please. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. Go. I just, I'm a huge Kiss fan, so yeah, I, I try to, I stand up for them. Yep. So, okay, so yeah, okay, but yes, we've we've gone and sort of made that relationship between you know, power pop and glam, and I'm I'm glad that you know I'm not alone on on uh, on that thought. But yeah, look, that's uh, it's it's a really strong uh, intro. I mean, but it, it's not often that you'd sort of find uh, an album that would that would have, I mean, you already went and said, you know, Big Star had balls and, you know, here to have the balls on their, the first cut on their first album to sing a song with a lyric that down. I mean, you know, they say, hi, we're introducing ourselves to the world. Hi, we're Big Star and we're going to sing to you a song. I feel like I'm dying. But, you know, they 
were clever enough to sort of bring this really uh, live, um, vibrant uh, feel to uh, to the song. They could have gone a completely different way to it, but um, to yeah, get and, credit and the, that they didn't. The, the production of that song is incredible. Just the way that the and it's a it's you see it over and over in the album and number one records. You have these dueling guitars going after yes. each other. Yes, you yes. That in Steel, you have that later on, and many of the songs, you know, and sort of jumping the shark again. I, I had just had this thought in the sense that. Um, you know, we talk about power pop, and I just I Matthew Kiss out there, and there's so many quote unquote power pop bands. And, and since you know I have this public forum today, I wanted to just stay. I want to make a shout out and tell you that you know not only is Big Star you know one of those those important bands for me. If you, I was to label them power pop, but I want to go off and say that one of my very favorite bands that also fits this genre that no one talks about is is the Raspberries. And I, I love the Raspberries like there's no tomorrow, and they, they fit, they're right up there for me, the big star in terms of songwriting and, and musicianship. I can't, I can't say that I think I've listened to them. Raspberries, you, I, you know, I know you know, go go all the way, Eric, Eric Carmen, please. Oh yeah, okay, yep, yep, yep. All right, okay, all right. Now I'm with you. Now I'm right. with you. Um, I, just sang, I just sang on your show. I'm a little ashamed of that. No, no, please, please. <laughs> look, I want. You know what? I think in uh, the uh, Ramones episode. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Zom and myself sang in close harmonies yet rock and roll high school. So, nice. so you know, this, this, please, I want this podcast to be a forum for uh, people to. Bad, just, bad singers. Don't go for it. <laughs> uh, look, I've got to say, Dr. Zom can hold a tune. He, nice. He's not, he's not bad at all. So, you know, I'm, it's about time I actually sort of got back to him and say, hey, Zom, come back on the show. What album do you want to cover? I, I don't fucking care. Just, just sing something. You know, just, He's got, he's got those vocal cords in there. He's, uh, that's our old uh, friend, Mr. Zone, uh, Dr. Zone. Thanks. And the Plimsolls, by the way. And the Plimsolls, Power Pop. Good, good. Um, that first Plimsolls record, man, that's a boner deal. Well, sorry. Look, I'm, I, yeah, look. You know what? We're gonna we, we can talk about what excites us, but this is this is not a porn podcast, okay? You just you know, keep, <laughs> keep it under the table, all right? Okay. So we'll you go to we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll go to the next song, uh, "Ballad of El Gudo," and right. and as much as I love feel, you know, when I heard the "Ballad of El Gudo," this is a song that I went and hit. You know, as soon as it finished, I thought I got to listen to this song again. I got to listen, and I played it stacks of times over. And uh, really, what's the origin of the term El Gudo? Yeah, I just, don't know. I've, oh. I've never, been, I've never been able to find an explanation for it either. And and the, like, as Feel was a Chris Bell song. Yep. El, El Gudo is the, the first song that Chilton brings to the table, and it's a great song, wonderfully written. It's beautiful, beautiful lyrics. Like I said, it's definitely you know, it's it, got some. It's it a poet is great in lyrically. Its own way. Yep. And, yeah, and it, what's what's interesting too, um, skating real fast back to history is they actually when they're recording this album, they actually Chris Bell and Annie Hummel were were going to college and they were like film students. Yep. And so there's actually film footage of the band recording Number One Record. There's like um, they shot a lot of footage, and their intention was to make some sort of movie and they were going to have like footage that was completely set to the, the first to, that was going to play in unison perfectly to the album and then there would be other things that would segue off and one of the things they talk about in that book I mentioned earlier by Rob Germanic is um, they had done they had done like a little movie for El Gudo which had Alex Schulten oh, wow. going off to the, the Memphis draft board 
and they had him in the elevator and they had him leave and run down the hall and go in his room and lock his door like he was all paranoid because a lot of the lyrics in that song they talk about you know something sort of mysterious like you know guns way to be stuck by you know they, they talk there's like this military thing to it where like you can tell something was going on there for him mm-hmm. now what I look I, I what I like about that song is I mean I, I know it's and that can be a, a fairly common theme you know life is getting me down but you know what no one's going to no one's going to uh, uh, turn me around no one's going to deviate me from my path and I actually sort of saw this as maybe you know like a a, a, a big star statement of intent you know well you know, uh, we're here we're new on the scene and, and but, but you know we're we're gonna we know we've got difficulties ahead of us, but nothing's going to turn us around. Or maybe sort of coming back to this uh, theme of this being a concept album, this is maybe, I guess, right. where the teenage um, uh, determination comes into it. Because, you know, certainly the next couple of songs uh, in the album have a bit of a uh, teenage growing up frustration sort of thing uh, going on there. I'm, I'm not exactly sure whether these songs, like if this were a... Uh, a, a musical or something like that, whether the songs would be in this particular order, but certainly I see thematically it's related to you know the next couple of songs in the street and thirteen, but not, necessar- yeah. not necessarily in in that order. But yeah, certainly a, a song maybe of um, of uh, you know, teenage determination. You know, life shit at school. My parents don't understand me, but you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna make something of myself. And I mean, I I, I guess when you sort of just explain it like that, it it. It does sound a little bit, you know, cliched and crass, and yet there, there is still something about the lyrics, how Chilton's going to put them together, that it, it sounds a little bit earthy. Um, I mean, I've, I've heard stuff out there that, oh, poor, you know, ooh, keep those words away from me, Jeez, just as well. I don't listen to what, you know, the words what I'm singing to when I listen to this great melody, but the, the, the lyrics here, they, uh, they definitely sound a little bit more honest to me than um, than a lot of other you know, pop songs which really just might pursue the same thing but are a bit trite and I, I just love the Beatlesque harmonies I know that elsewhere on the, elsewhere on the album we'll get to it uh, a couple of songs sound more Crosby, Stills and Nash but this is a this, the, the Beatles really are looking over the recording of this particular song I'm, just, I'm sure well, yeah there's there's a Birds homage in the harmonies too yeah yeah was, I could see was a big yeah. Birds guy and then um, yeah you know <laughs> There's the harmonies on, on El Gordo are incredible too. Especially like I recommend you know people if they haven't listened to this album in headphones because a good set of headphones it'll really blow your mind because you get to hear those right and left channel that you get to that mix and you get to hear those harmonies come through and you don't necessarily hear them mm. you know if you're not like completely paying attention listening to it on a stereo mm. and so you're forced to hear it in the headphones. And I really like that about the album is there's always for me hearing and I mean I've heard this album thousands of times and I still I always hear something. That I never remembered previously hearing. Uh, another thing, sense, so. another thing I like, it, I, I guess, um, uh, you know, we're talking about the structure, and you, you, you were saying before about uh, the perfection that went into the production. But I imagine that uh, Chris would have been uh, quite perfect about what he would have wanted. I mean, mind you, given that this is still a Chilton song, but I, I think this has still got Bell's stamp all over it. Um, probably in terms of the arrangement. So this is. Great, very simple, but really for me effective drum fill between um, 
the end of the verse and going into the chorus. So when they're, just before he sings, there ain't nobody going to turn me around. And, and Jody comes up with this great dum, da, da, dum, dum, da, dum, da, da, dum. And it, it's, it's very simple, but it, it's, it's definitely been, uh, I can't say choreographed, that's dance, but it's definitely been worked out in advance. And it just works so well for me. But yeah, yeah it's, it's perfect. Yeah. It, it, it is everything about this album and that song and every song on here is completely perfect. Like the arrangements, the, the production, the musicianship, the singing, the lyrically, it's perfect. And I think that's what makes it, that's what makes this album work and that's what makes it timeless. And like the cool thing about this album is that new people discover it every day and that's, that's going to be the legacy of it. But yes. The, yes. the even cooler thing about it is, and I think what makes it have such staying power is that there is this really organic you said natural there's it's an organic nostalgic feeling to the lyrics they're like they're they're timeless and they're they're there's like this it's just like screams nostalgia mm. you know like everyone has been there everyone wants to go back to that that day of being 15 years old and the biggest problem you had in life was getting that girl to like you yes you know yes. so i mean it's just so timeless and it's it's so relatable and it's completely organic and nostalgic well, i and guess that's, that's what i don't know that makes me i feel like me i can't understand why why alex someone like alex children would hate brilliant poetry like that it's just it doesn't I, he must like t99 new more than the next <laughs> thing because uh, no, no accounting for taste um, now, I, I guess that's why you know guys like us who are you know we're you know we're of a mature age um, uh, can still sort of like listen to these songs about you know teenage angst or growing up and and not feel like you know it's beyond us or, or we're old and pervy or something like that it's still it's there is a sense of nostalgia but it, because but this still is a very fresh sounding album and, and you know I guess maybe something to do with the production comes into play there but because the songs are so perfectly crafted um, you know, they could be singing the phone book and it wouldn't really matter but the, yeah there's if, if you were living in the time and if you were one of the you know, thousand people you know would spin you or were able to pick up a copy of the album it would be it would mean something to you you know growing up but it could also mean something to you at, at our age listening to it in 2012, and you know, I, I just want to buy a copy of this album for everyone I know, and just say, I, "Shit, listen I, to this." <laughs> I agree with you. Now, I'll just listen. I'll go on record. I'll tell you right now. I don't care who's the problem with it. This, like I said, top three. Okay. Yep. My number one album of all time. My favorite album without fail. Something I can never get tired of listening to. 100. It's been my favorite for 20 years. Mm. Beach Boys, Pet Sounds. Yep. Now you tell me what Beach Boys Pet Sounds and Big Star Number One Record have in common. Both great. What do they have? What do they have in common? Both are nostalgic olds to love. Yeah, well, okay, yes. That's what they are. Yes, yes, okay. I'd, so, okay, so from your perspective, are you you seeing that uh, Number One Record is not so much about someone about a, a teenager in the now? It's uh, it's someone recounting from you know many years prior what you know, his life growing up had been. I like to think of it that way. Okay, all right, well, works works for me. Works for me. All right, next song in the street, which look, it, it wasn't a show that I ever watched, but I believe that the, um, was a program that '70s show. Was this used right. as the uh, 
as the theme song. I mean, I, I, I never watched it. I've no idea whether it was any good or not, but you know, they at least had good taste in uh, acquiring, uh, uh, using this. Did they use the Big Star version or did they no, re-record they, they, it? They cheap, cheap Trick re-recorded the version. Oh, really? Well, I, yeah, because, well, the, the show was set in Wisconsin. Yep. Okay, so Cheap Trick is that band on the edge of Chicago and Wisconsin, the border. Mm-hmm. And so it made sense for them to redo it. And I'll, I'll tell you, I'll never forget. I remember watching that very first episode of that show on television. Mm. And he, I had no clue that was coming. And I was like, my jaw hit the floor. I was like, <laughs> a big star. <laughs> What's going on here? Yeah, yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Mm. Great song. Great song. Another Chilton song. Uh, you know, great song. Well written. A uh, real fun, poppy song. Mm. Uh, you know, fits right into place. Great. It's got a, you know, it's it, it it rocks like feel, but not quite as hard, and and it's a little less serious. Yeah, obviously, but but it's a great song nonetheless. Look, you know, it sort of reminds me in a way. It could have been a good Ramones song because you know they're singing, hanging out down the street. Same old thing we did last week. Not a thing to do but talk to you. And I'm, you know, the first thing that came into my head was, you know, now I want to sniff some glue because, you know, this could be a song just about right. about sure. guys, you know, well, well what, what do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? But, yeah. Well, think, but, about the, think about the bridge of that song in, mm-hmm. in the street. The lyric, wish we had a joint. <laughs> do you know the song lyrics? Yeah, yeah, yeah Justin, you're singing again. Oh, but that's okay. That's okay. I I just stabbed myself (laughs) through my stuff. No, 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 please. As I said, we encourage that. What is it? Wish we had a joint so bad. That's the lyric. Yes, yes, that's right. It is. Yes. So, um, yeah, so uh, probably one of the best songs about teenage boredom. Sure. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Um, It's a great great song. Well produced, real fun, dueling guitars again. Mm, mm, Oh, yeah, well, there you go. That's. We come back to the whole glam thing there, because um, that's that's a that's a real glam thing. You know, the the dual lead guitar lines, you know, two two lead guitarists, and well, at least two lead guitar lines within the one song, anyway. So, well, and it's, it comes down to a Beatles thing too, if you think about it, because I mean, this sort of number one record, sort of, I mean, technically is a predating glam a little bit. Yes, yeah, well, really, that's what I'm a precursor. Yeah. It's a precursor. Towards right. that, I'd be I'd be interested to know whether um you know how many uh, guys who went on you know to do uh, the whole glam thing you know actually sort of had listened to this. I mean, sure. So I don't know. probably none because they only made four thousand of them and it never probably came yeah, to England. Well, yeah, all right, okay, fair <laughs> fair point. Um, the next song, this this is as I said, okay, because you you were talking before about the whole nostalgic thing, and. Maybe this is a false nostalgia for me because, I mean, I only heard this album, as I said, you know, 10 to 15 years ago. And yet 13 is, I love a song with, and I can't define it objectively, but I love a song that has a summery feel. And I I can recall, you know, like when I was, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, 13, um... Uh, going down to the local swimming pool every summer and, you know, taking my radio with me. Uh, I'd lie down on the towel and, you know, listen to the local radio station, which at the time was uh, 3XY, the big AM radio station, and uh, you know, listen to whatever was big at the time. I remember when I started listening to them, the first big hits were uh, Bohemian Rhapsody uh, and uh, Bob Dylan's uh, Desire album that just came out. 
uh, and so I'd you know, be taking my radio every day during the summer down to the pool and listening to that and you know swimming laps of the pool and coming out and listening to the radio and just the feel of this song 13 it just has that summer guitar feel and I, I listen to this song and I, I didn't know it at the time but it makes me, it recalls me it makes me think of the Carnegie swimming pool which I'm thrilled is still there today um, uh, although it may not be but that's a different story it may not be there next summer but that's yeah, completely different but it just listening to this song makes me think of my time there and he even sings that line in there um, about you know I think there's a line in there about, can we meet down the at pool. the pool yeah. uh, and, and it just it's got that gorgeous summer you know what I mean about that summer guitar thing this yeah, and it's got like an amazing like twelve string going on. Yes, oh, that this album blow your of, mind. This <laughs> album is full of twelve string. I'm a sucker for twelve string acoustic guitar. Yep. Um, but I, I, I love this. I, I love the fact that you know the, the protagonist in the song. He's you know he. He, he wants to impress this girl. He wants to ask this girl out, and, and he's he's being a bit of a poser because you know he's saying, oh, he, he sings it. Won't you tell me what you're thinking of? Would you be a, an outlaw for my love? If it's so, let me know. If it's no, well, I can go. I won't make you. I mean, deep down, he desperately wants this girl to like him, but he's not going to show it. He's going to say, oh, well, I'm not going to make you do anything you you don't really want. But you know, on the inside, he's saying, please, please, please say you'll go out with me. And I just, I love that whole thing with him, you know, just pretending to be nonchalant about it, but really, he desperately wanted to go out with it. No one, no, no one I know. <laughs> oh, it's that's just so timeless, you know. It's so timeless. Perfect songwriting again. Great production. Pure intimacy. Uh, you can't ask anything better. It's again a perfect album. Mm-hmm. Um, but the next song, "Don't Lie to Me," sort of seems like well, you know, they've gone out on that date, and he's already gotten to be. Uh, uh, pretty, you know, jealous, possessive type. You know, I know where you, I know where you've been, and I know what you've been doing. Don't lie to me. Don't push me around. I told my dad. Now I'm telling you. Don't you push me around. So you know, one date, and he's he's going to be, you know, jealous, obsessive. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, how many how many times happened to you? <laughs> you know, uh, uh, listen. Another. Uh, this is a Bell collaboration, and the production on "Don't Lie to Me" is blowing that that down you have that the sort of total chaos happening is yes. just amazing it's amazing like to hear that like i've i've read some stories about how that's done and like you know how they brought motorcycles in the studio and <laughs> i was gonna ask you about yeah. is that true is that true? I, I had i read that on a website but is that true that they that that, mm, that, yeah. that it really yeah. is motorcycles yeah. jesus Sort wow. of I mean, interesting because it doesn't really, you know, that production aesthetic doesn't really fit in with what else is going on in the album. So it's sort of out of yes. field, but it's really it, it fits perfectly, and it, it's well, it's a cool story, regardless of what it's true. I, mean, I choose to believe it. <laughs> right, right. Look, I mean, and the, the thing I like is, you know, pop is, you know, it, it's it's strewn with songs that you know sing, "You made me blue, you cheated on me, you ain't no good," but you know, but what I what I think sets this apart from a lot of those songs is there's, there's a sense of menace here as well. You, know, he's, he's, you get the feeling that our protagonist here is he's a little bit unstable. He's not just run-of-the-mill, you know, you cheated on me, I hate your guts. It's like, you know, 
don't push me around, otherwise, you know, I could end up with with a, you know, I, I could ball a bunny in your in your um, in a tub of soup over there. So just don't <laughs> don't push me. Around. You're a real bunny boiler. You know? Right, right, yeah, and, and the, the chaos of the song reflects, you know. Technically reflects the state of the character and the concept, if you will. You know, mm-hmm. so you know he's thrown into confusion. So it's like you know, it's sort of like it seems like it's an on and off again relationship. You have he's starting out with Feel and he's lost her. He gets her back. You know, he's thinking about the good times. Yeah. Cheating on me, maybe, and then you follow up with what? You know, the India song. Oh, so, well, okay. Yes, 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 yes. You what, know. Like, what, what I was going to say is because uh, this is this is uh, Andy Hummel's moment on the album, isn't it? This is sure. the song that he wrote. And the first thing I thought about, I mean, well, not the first, I mean, just like, while I was preparing notes for this, I, was, I thought, you know what, Andy Hummel in a way is the John Entwistle of the group because you know, there Townsend goes writing all the, you know, like you look mm-hmm. at an album like Who's Next? He's writing all these spiritual songs about the near barber and uh, he's writing all these songs for you know, their big Lifehouse project and it's all very serious. And then John Entwistle comes in with this song about, you know, uh, my wife is out to get me and, you know, she catches me. Oh, I'm in trouble. She's going to shoot me down with a machine gun and she's going <laughs> to get a machete and she's going to cut my leg off and I'm, I'm dead. Man. And he comes up with these funny-ass songs. And even in Tommy, you know, Townsend couldn't write the songs like Cousin Kevin or or, or, or uh, Fiddle About, you know. He gets, you know, he gets... Ant whistle to write these bizarre little songs, you know, Boris the Spider, <laughs> right. and all these That's a great weird song, ass, yeah. funny, funny songs. And and this song, it's a piss take, you know. It's 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 a send up of all the rock stars, you know, who go to India to find enlightenment. What does he sure. say? I'd like to go to India, live in a big white house in the yep. forest, drink, drink a gin, gin and tonic, tonic and play, play a grand, grand piano. piano. That's right. Read a few books. Far from what saddens my heart. Try to live away from it. It's 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 funny. It's it's. A, I mean, I hadn't paid attention. I mean, I you know, I just I'd listened. I'd taken it in, and um, I just because I'm a sucker for the mellotron. So yeah, all these yeah. years, I just paid attention to the mellotron sound, and even then, I knew oh, this is different to anything else on the album. But sure. but you know, where I had to really pay attention to the lyrics for the podcast, and I thought, Jesus, this is a funny, funny song. And, we were talking before about the English influence, and this is a completely English sense. It, so it wouldn't be out of place uh, on maybe like a, a Fairport convention record or a, you know, a Sandy Denny so, uh, solo record. It's, it, in, in fact, really, it, it sort of, I thought, if the Kinks decided that they wanted to make a folk album, it, this would be a song from a Kinks folk album. It, sure. it's, it's got that rage. Oh, well, I, I've got to mention John Entwistle, but as well, you know. Ray Davies was not beyond writing a humorous lyric like oh, this. Oh, right, right, right. Uh, and um, the, the folk, uh, yeah, it just, yeah, a, a, a great digression. Okay, folks, here's Interval and here's Andy to uh, sing it, to, to write a song for you. It's, right, uh, and that, that Mellotron, you know, it, it, that comes from going back to Terry Manning, one of the sort of quasi, you know, founders of Big Star, and that Terry Manning was sort of one of the first guys to sort of buy a Mellotron and import it to the States. Okay. You know, and, and that Mellotron is heard on his album, Home Sweet Home, which, you know, I posted on Facebook, the, the Savoy Truffle cover. Mm-hmm. And so he, that, you know, Mellotron is just featured everywhere on that album. Yeah. And yeah. so you can sort of see how, you know, him hanging around then, you know, mixing 
doing some mixing on the album, turning some knobs, you can see how that Mellotron was definitely in the studio at Ardent. Mm, you know, mm, it makes mm. it makes sense. Yep, yep. All right, so um, we go from the India song, and we you know we come, you know, they come back. Okay, we're back from break now, and uh, here's a little number called "Where My Baby's Beside Me," which you know, fairly straightforward slice of pop, but still, you know. It's 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 a work of uh, you know pure pop genius. And I, I think it is it's, it's, my it's, favorite song on the album. Actually, it's it's a great counterpoint. Uh, this is this is a Chilton moment, and it's a great counterpoint to Bell's feel. So you know, because like we have at the start of the album, you know, uh, feel singing. I feel like I'm dying. I'm never going to live again. And here in this song, you know, Chilton's. Uh, he, he's singing about his woman like it doesn't matter I don't need my doctor I don't need this just That's when right. this woman's beside me I feel on top of the world and, you know, it's, it's, it's not a unique theme it's been done many times before that and it's been done many times since but but with such joy and um, it's it, it just I think it, it's it's great to have those two songs in counterpoint on on, on the same record it, it just it, it works it works so well yeah, it's, it's pure pop genius, and, and it goes back to, you know, going back to Rock City, which is, you know, every, sort of every song on Rock City has is, is sort of like a rocker, just like When My Baby's Beside Me. Mm. And, and you know, When My Baby's Beside Me is so great because it is the rocker on the album. I mean, every album, every song sort of really rocks in its mm. own way. Mm. But, I mean, this song really rocks, and... You know, it, this song can drive me crazy if I hear it at the right time, and I'm just I lose control and start, you know, going wild in the streets. And, but, but anyways, this album again has more so than any other song in the album has those dueling guitars. And I mean, you have yes. like a, a little a breakdown of like a minute and a half of just dueling guitar solos, mm-hmm. and that's so. And then you listen to the song in headphones, you really get to hear. Um, some of the overdubs, the guitars that you don't really hear when you're listening to it, and just on a normal stereo, and then the background vocals on this are really great, very Beatles-esque too, very, very sort of side two of Abbey Road harmonies. Okay, yeah, yeah, I, I can see. That. Did you say, sorry, coming back to what you were talking before um, about your uh, experience with uh, Alex Chilton? Did you say you had this on vinyl? Yeah, yeah. Oh wow. So, so how do you notice? I mean, it's not hard how, to get. No, I'm, 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 I'm yeah. okay. Well, I'm, have you noticed? Okay, so you listen to this with headphones. Have you noticed? Like, is there a better mix? Does it sound better on vinyl to you than it does on the CD? No, no. And I'll tell you, it's funny you mention that because, um, you know, going back to that book, I, I, I guess I just reread that book just so I was up on top of everything for the show. And and they talk about the mastering of Number One Record, actually. And they had a tremendous amount of difficulty mastering the album. Like something, they just couldn't get it right because they, you know, they were pressing to vinyl. And so they, it took them like six or seven tries of mastering on vinyl to get it actually to where they wanted where the sound was right. Wow. Because there was, there were some technical things that were going on with that they had done in the recording that, that weren't translating to the vinyl. Yeah. And there's a great story in there about, um, I can't remember the gentleman's name who mixed the album for vinyl, but um, <laughs> Chris Bell had came in and he was insistent that he wanted a star etched into the vinyl, you know, in the place <laughs> on the, the inside, you know, where there's no play, yeah, yeah, where yeah, it's yeah. just, you know, hollow. Yeah. And he, 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 so they said that they had mastered it. They had done an acetate and they were ready to go. They had done side two. And Bell came in and took it and etched it and broke it. Oh. And they hadn't done a backup, so they had to redo the master. 
a bit. So uh, they kicked him out of it. A, <laughs> kicked him out of the studio. A few choice but, words went down that day, I'm sure. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, they had a lot of troubles with it, but no, I mean, I again, it's like I, I don't know, I vinyl's vinyl to me. I don't, I've never really gotten any sort of enlightening experiences from vinyl you know production wise in the sense that i can hear something i can't hear like you really can't you know perfect example is sort of like the the crossfade and in interstellar overdrive of pink floyd you know if you listen to headphones it can literally give you vertigo yeah yeah. you know you're like whoa you fall over you know (laughs) and (laughs) you can't you don't really get you obviously don't get that when you're listening to it on vinyl or just you know on home stereo on cd so i mean you get a lot of extra stuff i mean great records always give you extra stuff in headphones you know if you listen to Pet sounds, for example, you're always hearing some wacky stuff you never heard from the you know the 80th time you listened to it on stereo out loud. I, I remember when I was a kid, um, and I went over to visit my my neighbours across the road. Uh, they had like this really incredibly you know shit hot state of the art Danish stereo system, and um, I, was, I don't know how old I would have been about maybe 10 or 11, and I think that was about the time I started getting into rock music. I'd just been listening to classical up until that point. And they um, they went and said, oh, look, now have a listen to this. And they went, I put on the headphones, these like, you know, state-of-the-art headphones on this fantastic amp, and they put for me Strawberry Fields Forever. And I've spent mm-hmm. the rest of my life trying to duplicate that experience, and I cannot. That was just like <laughs> a, a perfect um, the, the, the best, the best equipment, the best headphones, um, and yeah, I mean, and I've heard the sound, the, the song, thousands of times, but I've never replaced that experience. But I should be grateful at least I had that experience in my life. So, sure. Um, all right, my life is right. <laughs> oh no, sorry, that's the next song. Sorry. Um, <laughs> and, and this is. I think this is one of my two favourite songs from the album. And, you know, we were talking before about When My Baby's Beside Me being a good counterpoint to Bell's Feel. Well, My Life Is Right is Chris's own counterpoint to Feel. Right. Um, sure. Because it, I guess similar lyrically to My Baby's Beside Me, it's, it's, an, it, it's a... You know, you know, he's uh, singing you know, once again about you know, the woman who saved him from the distress caused... Right. By the woman in fear, or maybe he's forgiven the same woman. I don't know, or maybe this is uh, sometime, you know, some before the rot set in. I don't know, but it's just I love, I love positive lyrics. I don't know, you give me light. You are my day. You, you give me life, and that's right. Which on paper, I think, well, you know, thousands of songs have that, but in context of how beautiful the melodies are, um, it, it, and I like it sort of like a, it, it starts off more ballady and then it comes to the chorus you know where where uh, you know it rocks out a bit more and you know jody stevens is all over the kit and um i, I love that stop start thing um and it, it's the song right. it, it could have the potential in the wrong hands to be completely saccharine but sure but you know once again we're talking about big stars number one record and just the stars aligned or you know whatever other cliche you want to use it's just another example <laughs> right. another example of and, and I guess another thing that you know we should emphasize is that we—it's it, obvious that we've got great songwriting going on here. But you know, if a completely different group of musicians had taken these exact same songs and said, "Right, well, we're going to arrange this for us," you know, they'd never heard the demos, they'd never heard anything. They could have come up with something completely different, and you know, maybe 
maybe not bad because you know great song is a great song but it could have been completely ordinary but you know, the, the, the combination of the songs and their arrangements we've spoken about production we've spoken about songwriting but maybe not the arrangements and I, I, I know. You, is there anything in it's the all Chris Bell? It's all Chris Bell. Anything this, in the book that says about how we about the uh, the arrangement uh, process, how we went? I mean, I know he died quite young, so maybe never documented that, and hopefully it'll come out in the film. But um, well, this this song was another one that they had kicked around for five six years before Big Star even came into fruition. Okay. So I mean, if you listen to the earlier versions of it on like Rock City or like the demos, it's it's pretty much the same song here. With the you know the re-recording, I think they they threw Chilton in in some parts. Mm-hmm. They re-recorded and threw Chilton. So, I mean, so what you see, or sorry, excuse me, what you're hearing is what you're getting, really, literally, in the sense that the song has pretty much always been arranged like this. And you know, I just think Chris Bell was a very complex guy, and and you know, there's there's been a lot of talk about, you know, he was a guy that was questioning his sexuality uh, as well. Okay, so. So you, you you know if you throw that into the context you you you, you could be about this this <laughs> this could be a, a you know a, a gay themed um do you know what I'm saying no. like you, I mean you have to I think about that I'm just like really I mean man <laughs> you know it's like who knew you know who knew that was what was going on you know in, in his head and, and you know I think he was just overly com- com- more complex than the next guy I think and I think. That it's in the songwriting, I think it's it's really his sort of bearing his heart and soul, and, and I think that's why again it's so timeless. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so well, the, the the rest of the album, um, I mean, I, I sort of wondered whether you know they'd run out of a budget or, or you know Jody was off on holiday or something like that because it's all it's all like acoustic. <laughs> From from here, I mean nothing wrong with that. They're 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 all they're they're all great songs, but it almost seems to be like a a bit of a break with the feel of the rest of the uh, uh, what's gone on previously. But still, absolutely perfect songs. And uh, I I already got to mention that my life is right is one of my two favorite songs on the album. Well, Mm. give me another chance. Uh, The the next one is my other favorite song on the album. And you know this. Uh, I mean, thematically, I guess it's a, maybe a, a cousin to uh, John Lennon's "Jealous Guy." You know, it's, it's a song of apology sure. from uh, from you know, this guy to his girl for you know having been an asshole with a promise that he's going to improve. Um, you know, none of these songs are maybe unique thematically in terms of what they're doing, but it's all with the presentation. And what makes this song incredible for me is you know this particular chord structure that's just it's heartbreakingly beautiful chilton has got this uh very fragile vocal delivery uh it's got those incredible vocal harmonies and it's got a mellotron and uh, uh, i've given you the impression i love a mellotron um (laughs) i i i love it it's got this sort of what sounds to me like a uh this chord sequence of a major a major seventh um and so, hang on. Uh, so, sorry, the chord itself, uh, a major seventh and a seventh, uh, and, and I love that chord. It, it just, it, it, I've heard it before. It just kills me. I love what I love what they do here. I'm not, I'm not being very articulate, but I, I just gotta get you the, uh, the. I mean, you hear so many modern pop ballads where they substitute technique like this. I learnt this great word, melisma, uh, you know, where. where you know, Whoever it might be, your Mariah Carey's are particularly guilty of it, where they sing. That's definitely a porno here. I know that for sure. 
um, that they substitute you know some sort of crappy porno vocal mm. technique um, for genuine emotion and, sure, and, uh. and histrionics that's another good word but you know here it's all emotion you get the feeling my god you know what have you lived through if he was just sort of like no this is just an academic exercise well then you know Christ you've You've, uh, you've had a fake honesty really, really damn well, but I have to believe here that he must have been through some sort of experience to write this song because this just sounds so honest to me. Yeah, yeah. Listen, there's something, uh, there's something incredible. I'm a huge fan of, 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 of major sevens too. Yep. And like, it's like McCartney always did, like you know, E to A major seven. Yep, yep. Like, and so like that stuff. There's something really heartbreaking about that chord progression. It is definitely. It, this, and I think, and I haven't, I've never played. Give me another chance, but I, I have a sneaking suspicion it might be an E and A. I, I, I don't know. I've never played it, but it's, it I sounds. Mean, I think that's a. De, I think it's. I think it's D D major seventh and D seventh. Sounds. It sounds okay. to me like the chord structure, but I. I, I I could be talking through my ass, but sounds to me like that. But yeah, but it's a, it's again, it's a, it's a chillin' song. It's great. I've listen. I've put "Give Me Another Chance." I, I've done my share of putting it on broken girlfriend compilations to get her back. <laughs> I've done it. I've done it. I mean, I've done it. So it's like I'm so familiar with what that song can do yeah. and the emotion behind that song yeah. that I've, I've used it many a time to, to go that route. Yeah, yeah. Oh well. I, I, I tell you what, you know, if, if if any girl would get that as a present, you know, she and if she didn't come back to you, then you know she's not worth it. You know, she right, she ought right. to hear that song and think, geez, he must love me. I'll, I'll yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go back. You know, he, he's using that great big star right. song, right? Well, that's 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 all I need. Yeah, you have to you have to wonder why they they sort of did go the route of the sort of lamenting ballad for the rest of the album because I mean there were a lot of songs being kicked around like there was a great song um, that, that Chris Bell had written uh, that recorded for Rock or that was demoing during Rock City a year before called I Got Kind of Lost which would have been a, 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 just an incredible rocker that would have been right up there with when my baby's beside me yeah, yeah. I'm not- so and again unless they were going for that concept I mean that's the only thing I can really think of because you have this on again off again relationship that sort of ends with a happy ending. Well, what they what they possibly should have done was, rather than make the last four songs uh, four separate songs, they should have done an Abbey Road thing and just segued one into the next Pedling. because they, they yeah, yeah. really do belong to each other. Um, yeah, which they, yeah, because they could have done that quite easily, and then because you have this album finishing up with a sort of Her Majesty. <laughs> yes, it <laughs> do does. Know? It's only a so. minute. It's only the, the last <laughs> yeah. the last song. Um, you know, what four lines? Are, Love me again, be my friend. I need you now. I'll show you somehow. I mean, you know, really, it's it. It could have been something written by a. Well, there you go. We we said that this is a teenage themed album, and they really could be, you know, words that come out of a a fifteen year old guy who's just had his first crush and and. and you know, Oh, well, yeah, it's it's and I, and it for me it's also a real Crosby, Stills, Nash moment. I know we're skipping ahead because we've gone and missed a couple of songs, but but as long as we're on this, you know, this shortest song, it's under a minute, and it, it, but it has this gorgeous right. Crosby, Stills, Nash moment. You know, the twelve string guitar, the the vocal harmonies. Um, yep. and, and really, really, I've, I've got a, I've made a note here saying that it, it just sounds so beautiful. They could have sung. Having a shit constant, and I still would have loved it. It's just 
yeah. th- those harmonies are so beautiful. It doesn't. It's so, another. It's another in joke too. The ST one hundred or the four slash six is a record label joke. Okay. There was some, there's a joke I, I can't remember now, but there was a joke and they. It was some joke. It's sort of a stab at the record label they were they're working with. Okay. Like that was going to be released somehow goofy or something. I can't remember now. Mm. Uh, look, talk a little bit about Watch the Sunrise because you've already gone and mentioned it a couple of times there because that's where you know the album goes you know, from heartbreak but to this beautiful moment of Watch the Sunrise. Sure. Okay. Well, that was a song that that Chilton came in with at the start. It was a, a sort of a half finished song, mm. and 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 Bell came in and they finished it together. And Bell was the guy that put on the intro and did the arrangements and so I mean you know it, they, the plan was going again back to that film is they were going to shoot the film and then they were going to sort of conclude the film with Watch the Sunrise with, with Alex sitting alone in the studio under a spotlight playing that acoustically and that was how the film was going to mm, end mm. So do you think that this is this footage like is it buried somewhere or do you think it's liable to show up in the uh, documentary that they're making? Listen, I would, I, I would rather see this footage released than the documentary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would rather see this entire footage released than, the, than you know, snippets. Or I'd rather have it than just the documentary, to be honest. I'd rather have a documentary about Chris Bell and this footage than I would have the documentary about, about Alex Chilton's genius and Big Star. But um, <laughs> Do you think that's the road that the yeah, documentary is going to take? I think so. I, I mean, I've seen I've, there's a few clips online because, you know, they're... they're the producers of the documentary have run short on money, and they have a Kickstarter program. They've hit their goal. A few days left to go, um, but there are like a couple ten-minute clips out there on YouTube of, of the footage. Like there's a, um, a ten-minutes clip of, of South by Southwest uh, where Chilton had passed away a couple days before they were to play together, and so there's this huge all these interviews with like Michael Mills. Um, you know how the genius of Alex Evan okay. fucking Dondo, yeah. like Evan Dondo, give me a break. <laughs> and you know, oh, Alex was a genius. It's like Evan, shut up, shut up. Uh, give me a big gay heart too. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but anyways, so I mean, I hope it doesn't take that route. I hope they do give Chris Bell the the sort of respect he deserves because I really think. I mean, I'm I'm I, I'm not. I'm not a hater of Alex Chilton. I'm not. I like. I just don't. Even think if he didn't he autograph your album, right? I, I'm still. <laughs> I, I, I've forgiven him. You're a bitter and twisted you can't speak person. Ill of, listen, you can't speak ill of the dead because they can't defend themselves. Right, okay. So, um, I've forgiven him, and I, I, I just, I don't think that he is the genius that people think he is. Like, I think it's a situation. It was more chic to like Alex Chilton. Like, I mean, if you've listened to like Flies on Sherbert. It's not that good. <laughs> like, it's an album that everyone wants to like. And, and I mean, I don't know many people that like it, to be honest with you. I don't, I've never came across anyone that's like, yeah, that's a masterpiece. Yeah. It's just like, it's one of those albums where it's like, yeah, you have to own it because you're like a music geek and you should own it and you should respect it. Is it that great? No, not really. It's not that great. It's kind of a, it's kind of a, you know, a bumbly mess. And it's, you know, it's him with excess and it's him self-sabotaging himself again. So, so, so I was going to just let me ask you, I believe he did an album with Ben Vaughn. Is that correct? I don't know. Did he? I, I, I don't know. I'd, he's, I'd he's, read something that he'd done an album with Ben. Oh, well, obviously you haven't heard it, so I can't ask you what it's like, but, um, Chilton was, Chilton was like the originator of what I call Ryan Adams syndrome, which is like, he puts out so much music yeah. that is so prolific yeah. that you can't keep up and it's mostly shit. Uh, so it's like if you would have slowed down and put out one good album every couple of years, <laughs> you know, instead of the like the Ryan Adams puts out twenty albums a year, 
Oh, you know, I, th- I, th- like, I think he's been keep up, and it's like most of it shit. Oh no! Oh so no! No! Like... No! Well, then, Dem's fighting words, <laughs> Mr. Bozong. Uh, I, I mean, look, I, I wouldn't say I love every um, Ryan Adams album equally, but I know that there was a lot of shit put out on um, on on. Uh, hang on, well, actually, I can't say I haven't heard rock and roll, but but um, what was it? Um, Oh, the one that he released in two parts, and then because yeah, the love, is, love hell, is, hell. is hell, I love yeah. love is hell. I think it's a great album. Yeah, a lot of people fine. say, oh, no, 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 no. and you know, every, every... rock and roll is fine. But when he like got into Cold Roses, was that Cold Rose? Was that the album he did? Was that the, the, was the, the, two, the two CD one that? I th- it was the album that came after Love Is Hell. I think it I might think. have been Cold Roses, which I really liked. Yeah, that was shit. No, sorry, and so... we'll have to agree to disagree <laughs> on this one, my friend. I uh, love it. I, I listen. I am the hugest Whiskey Town fan. I, I was like a Whiskey Town fan. And that's fan the thing. I think with, the 90s. I bought I bought Pneumonia. That's the only Whiskey Town album I own, and I, I keep it there because you know, well, people tell me it's good, so I think, well, maybe one day I'll get it. But apart from one song, oh, apart so- from one song in it that I think sounds a little bit like Penny Lane, um, the rest of it, you know, is a bit of a snooze fest. Oh, you, well, yeah. But see, that's the thing is Pneumonia is like a pile of shit, and so like you need to get like Strangers Almanac is like a masterpiece. Okay. Stranger's Almanac is like the first one I heard. That was like the one that like when I was like, I don't know, 17 years old, this guy at a record store said, oh, you like the replacements? You'll love this. <laughs> he gave it to me. I'm like, this sounds nothing like the replacements, but I love yeah, it. Yeah. And so like, you know, I was right there. Like I was there on the first day when Heartbreaker came yeah. out. I was like, yeah, I can't wait. And there, I mean, there's a really notorious story. If you research Ryan Adams in the Whiskey Town, like there's a famous show that happened locally here where he was, you know, this little 18 year old brat that came to town to play Whiskey Town. And like he was getting booed and he walked off the stage before they played a note. Oh, like it was, I mean, it's a famous story. Like. And so it's like that was that's a band that I'm aching to get back together, but they probably never will. So, but I mean, Strangers Almanac, man, that album, that's in my top five. The, 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 the famous story that I know of, and I believe it might have even happened in in my hometown of Melbourne, um, was you know some dick, and I'm sure this has been done in other cities around the world too, where there'd be some dick in the audience who'd yell out, "Summer of '69." And he, yeah, he, yeah, Brian. He, he, he right, told, yeah, he, he's yeah. like, get the story, fuck yeah. out of my show. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, oh gosh, it is pretty funny. You think it about is. It. He just takes himself so mm. seriously, and that's the problem. Like that is the problem with him. I actually, I when I was in New York, I, I stayed in New York for a while, and um, I actually, I was drinking at a bar with him and he was at a bar and he was a total douche. Oh, really? It was when he was eight. Yeah. He was a total douchebag. He was, there was a bar he owned on Avenue yeah. a, it had this awesome jukebox, but yeah, he was in there and like on down below was his rehearsal space. And we were in there and he, but he was such a dick to everyone that was in there. Yeah, I wouldn't have trouble believing that, but no. <laughs> he just takes himself so seriously. And I think that's the problem with Alex Chilton too, is why I kind of brought it up. I think he just takes himself so seriously. Mm. I think that's a huge problem. All right. Okay. Well, I think that's why his music suffers. I don't know. I mean, a lot of his albums are just total. I shit, suffer right? for my music, and now it's your turn. Um, oh yeah, he washed he washed dishes. Oh, that's such a hard life. He knows silver. His silver spoon, mommy and daddy gave him money into his forties. I'm yeah. sure. <laughs> well, how, how do you think he was uh, able to get by and only selling like you know fifty copies of you know number one record or something? Yeah, I mean, there's some great there's some great songs in his catalog. I mean, he's got a great pop sensibility, but. I just don't. I just. I don't know. I just don't want people to like. It's frustrating to me as a as a Chris Bell fan, as a you know a huge fan of I Am the Cosmos. 
like which is another I think a ballsy thing, you know. Um, I am the cosmos. Come on, and you know, <laughs> well, yeah, number one record. I am the cosmos. I mean, there's exactly. a theme see, going see, on. See, there's the thing going on there, and there's like there, when 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 I am the cosmos came out in 1992 and C. There was a, a famous critic that said, "Finally, I've heard this, and I can now see that Chris Bell really didn't need Alex yeah, Jones in the first place." Okay. So, or something like that to that mm. degree, but yeah. But I mean, no, it's a, you know, I think they made each other better, and that's why I think this album works mm. so great. All right, well, I think we've gone and um, discussed all that we can about uh, number one records, so what we'll do now, we're going to um, have another break, and uh, we'll come back with uh, Eric Reanimator and his wonderful segment, An Album I Love. Uh, so... Um, We'll be back after another break, and um, after Eric, then uh, we'll have our pleasantries and um, sign off. So um, you're listening to Love That Album with Morris and Justin. We'll be back shortly. Eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Let's just tell you something big good's coming up. This is Terry Frost, and I want to tell you about my new podcast, The Martian Drive-In. In the podcast, me and a guest will look at obscure but interesting speculative fiction movies, the ones that don't get enough love, the obscure movies that you catch late at night you can't remember the name of, but you really like them. You can go to marsdrivein.blogspot.com or subscribe to the Paleo Cinema feed in iTunes. The Martian Drive-In Podcast. Watching the sky since 2012. Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. I want two, I want two, three, four. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Now it's time for an album I love with Eric Reanimator. talking about King's X and their 1989 album, Gretchen Goes to Nebraska. Hailing from Houston, Texas, by way of Missouri, King's X is a three-piece power trio featuring Doug Pennick on bass and vocals, Ty Tabor on guitar and vocals, and Jerry Gaskill on drums, and at least one track of their catalog. He's provided their vocals. King's X is a very personal band to me, and while I don't listen to their records as much as I used to, I can safely say that they got me through college. 
lyrically, they were exploring territory of being an outsider, not knowing where you fit in the world, being alone, without going to cliched, mopey, woe-is-me kind of sophomoric, immature places. Definitely their lyrics reflected their struggle as, well, first, as Christians in a secular world, but secondly, Doug Pennick has come out of the closet as being not only a gay man, but a gay black man. And looking back on their history and their music, you can see and hear the struggles with their identity. Now, when I say Christian, I'm not talking about Christian rock. This is not music to proselytize. This is not music that is out there to worship to. This is music made by people that happen to have religious beliefs who are trying to figure out how that works in their day-to-day lives. Musically, King's X takes their cues from 70s rock and roll. Definitely you can hear Rush. You can hear some Thin Lizzy. Also, there is definitely a heavy dose of the Beatles. And let me just say here, and I know this is heresy. If you were to ask me, am I a Beatles guy or a Stones guy, my answer is always the Trogs. But when I'm not being a jerk, it's actually the Stones. The Beatles wrote some great songs, but I don't love them. I don't embrace them the way that many people do. However, King's X, along with their, what I would call little brother bands, the Galactic Cowboys, and the Atomic Opera forged a sound unlike anything else I've ever heard. I discovered them via their hit song, It's Love, from the Faith, Hope, and Love album, which came out in 1990. They were one of those transitional bands between 80s hard rock, heavy metal, and 90s grunge. Back, they were a favorite of many grunge bands. And Jeff Ahmet of Pearl Jam and Mother Love Bone, who I talked about previously, was a big enough fan that he took them out on tour with Pearl Jam and also did record an album under the name Three Fish with bass player Doug Pennett. But let's take a sample of the sounds on this album.
that was a good sample of the band's sound. One of the issues that I have when I'm putting these together is start playing these songs and I just want to listen to all of them and I want you to listen to all of them. But I have to kind of chop them up and figure out how to best present them. Anyways, King's X uh, released several albums since Gretchen Goes to Nebraska. Followed up with album I mentioned before, Faith of Love. Followed by the album King's X and then Dogman. Dogman was really their chance to break out on the major label, and the band tried to be more accessible. It just didn't connect with commercial audience. They followed it up with Ear Candy, which may be their best album, and is another album that I love, and maybe I'll do another segment on that one down the line. But not crossing into the mainstream meant that they are forever going to be a cult band, which I'm fine with. Really... I think the bands that don't connect, but that find that audience and that grow and who can sustain a career and a fan base for 20 plus years, I think that's to be applauded. While the discount bins may be full of copies of Space Hog or Hum or Alanis Morissette or whatever true King's X fans are still out there and they're still playing with records. I babbled on enough. I'm going to take it out with a little more of the song we've been listening to, Pleiades. This is Eric Reanimator and I'll catch you all on the flip side. Thanks very much for that, Eric. Another great uh, an album I love segment. Yep, King's X certainly sounds like uh, a really interesting album that there. Uh, Gretchen goes to Nebraska. And um, I think yeah, in an email uh, that we'd uh, had, uh, Eric had mentioned that he thought that this particular album would be a good fit with our Big Star episode, and I'm certainly inclined to agree with that. Uh, Eric, you know, going and saying that you're a, a Rolling Stones guy over a Beatles guy, I mean... I don't know about that. I don't know, but uh, well, if we well, could hit, if we could hit him, we would. Yeah, we would indeed, indeed. <laughs> but I'm not going to. I, I want him to come back. I want him to, you know, keep submitting segments, even come onto the show. So you know, you're allowed to be wrong. Uh, that's okay. Uh, all right. So um, we'll be back in a fortnight with another episode of Love That Album, and Eric will have another segment for that. Before we sign off, though, um, just a quick shout out the usual pleasantries to. Uh, 
the shows that um, I'm a big fan of, and please feel free to throw in any that you're a big fan of as well, Justin, to give a bit of a shout-out to. But uh, the salutations to uh, Silver and Gold, Paleo Cinema, and now the Martian Drive-In podcast, both hosted by Terry Frost, Sound Opinions, uh, Film Spotting, they don't need my promo but you know i like them anyway uh better in the dark and uh, actually my next podcast will be with thomas dj thomas dj will be doing our next show uh but more of that in a couple of weeks i won't reveal what the album is the list music podcast i'm very very excited because i'm going to be recording with them this week Uh, i've been angling towards doing a show with them and i'll be doing too. So very, very excited about that, but you'll have to wait and see what the topics are going to be. Big uh, uh, shout out to my good friend Michael Persh, uh, who is sitting in his bar in Adelaide. Uh, hello, Michael, and um, have a beer on me. Uh, looking forward to uh, doing another show with you uh, very shortly. And of course, some program, I don't know if you've heard of it, the Mondo Film and Video Guide. What do you know about this one? Well, actually, before we talk about that, did do you guys drink Fosters down there, or is that, like, piss? No, that's, that's, that's piss. <laughs> <laughs> no one here actually drinks Fosters. Um, there's, there's actually, I, I remember when I was in New York back in 96, and uh, I went to the, you know, the concert in Central Park. Um, you know, there was, I, I didn't realize. I thought you know, the Simon and Garfunkel thing was a one-off, but I realized in summer it's a regular thing. Every Sunday there's a mm-hmm. concert right. in Central Park. And I think it was Johnny Clegg who uh, who was performing that Sunday, and I saw all these people going around with these buckets of of um, Fosters, and I'm thinking, why the hell are you drinking this? And you're like, oh, oh you know, you you'd like that. You're Australian. No, no, no. It's uh, but we always had you know, us Australians have this joke. I'm sure it's not an Australian joke, but you know, we like. We like this joke about American beer be like making love in a canoe. It's like fucking close to water, um, <laughs> and pretty much it is. But it's so I, good. I, I, th- I think imported Fosters. Oh, so Fosters yeah. for the American market is more like American beer than than Australia. But but no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. No, we don't drink that here. Uh, so any Anyways, any podcast so- who you want to um. Well, before you sort of uh, give a little bit of a any any details about what's happening in uh, Mondo Filmland, any. Uh, podcast you want to give a bit of a shout out to anything that you'll um, that that you listen to that's really sort of that you think our listeners should uh, have have a bit of a, uh, a tune into I think people should just keep listening to your show because you're the only respected actually you're the only respected music podcast I listen to so. right well you can come back on this program anytime um, I had that feeling I was, that would get me that. Yeah, yeah it, it has. It's, it's, it's won you. Good. Well done. So what's happening in Mondo Filmland? Oh, you know, not much. We're going to finish up the Jerry Lewis series, uh, working on a bunch of exciting things. I just don't know when I'll get to them. I want to do a series on Chaplin. I want to do a series on uh, experimental filmmaker Damon Packard. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just, it's, it's hard finding the time right now. I've got a lot of things in the fire, mm. and uh, I want to see which one makes me money is what I'm going to do. Right. How's that? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a worthwhile ambition. Um, sure. But, I, but you know, without wanting to sound like I'm pissing in your pocket, but um, I, I hopefully I speak for a lot of other people out there that we're anxiously awaiting the rest of the Jerry Lewis series because, uh, as I, you know, I have already gone and mentioned to you, I'm a big fan of that uh, first episode. And um, you know, I, you know, my, my kids are huge fans of uh, the Nutty Professor and um, uh, the Ladies Man, my my 
I borrowed the ladies' man out of the local public library about uh-huh. five months ago, and you know we had it for two weeks, and I think she watched it every day. She said, oh, that's funny. Yeah. And, um, so yeah, yeah, it's uh, classic. Yeah, timeless stuff there. So um, yeah, absolutely. Please. Yeah, I got lots of good content coming up for those, and uh, stuff that you know. Stuff that you'll never, you've never heard anywhere before about the ladies' man. I've got interesting content about. Mm, good. It's about the writing of that film and how it came about and yeah, stuff like that. Mm. All right. Well, so please, yep, get those out. Um, looking forward to hearing them. And uh, okay, well, I think we'll probably wrap this up. Thanks very much once again. It's it's wonderful to be able to speak to someone so passionate about uh, such a great album as number one record. Uh, and as knowledgeable, I love that you brought to the table that story about you know meeting Alex Chilton, uh, even yes, if it was he, even if it did break your heart. But <laughs> it did break my heart, yeah. But, uh, no, but yeah, no, yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Fantastic. We'll look forward to uh, uh, finding another album to do sometime over the next couple of months. All right, uh, Morris here, Justin there. You've been listening to love that album. We'll be back in a couple of weeks uh, to do a show with uh, Thomas DJ of uh, Better in the Dark. Um, or I don't know, maybe I'll even fit in another episode with Michael Persh. I'm not sure. Let's see how we go. But um, anyway, uh, cheers. Thanks for listening. Please go out, listen to some great records, read a great book, watch a great film, um, and uh, just enjoy yourselves. And uh, whatever side of the world you're listening on, keep warm if you're in the Southern Hemisphere and cool off at the pool if you're in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, I think yeah, I've, I've prattled on too much. Be well. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.